Mm-hmm. What's up, y'all? It's Hotep Jesus. We are back with another epic discussion, big brain talk. Of course, I have another special guest for you today, as always. This guy is extra special. He's, he's from uh, my home state, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, he's the Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Shiva. How you feeling, bro? I'm doing great, Hotep. Great to be here. Awesome. Great to have you. You've been uh, a highly requested guest. Um, my philosophy is with guests is I don't reach out to people usually, especially if, unless I know them. Usually. So one of our people reached out to you. And you responded promptly. We got this thing set up, and I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, you're here. Um, so let's just hop right into this thing, right? Um, you uh, are from India, right? Tell me your story, you know, as it progresses from India to the United States and how you're getting amalgamated into our culture. Well, it's, it's an interesting story. It's, it's many ways the American story uh, in, in a different way, in a different flavor, Hotep. But, you know, I grew up in two Indias. I grew up in India, you know, I was born in India in 1963. Um, India, as you may know, is a country within countries that, you know, it spans from thousands of years ago to modern times. In one scene, you can see it's, it's a very layered country. So, you know, I grew up in Bombay uh, as a kid, which is, you know, you see people driving on Arma Armani's, you know, or in, in Armani's and BMWs. And at the same scene, you see bullet carts and rickshaws and bicycles and beggars and slums in one scene. But I also grew up in a, you know, in a, in a village in deep South India for about at least a third or a third of my life because my grandparents were poor village farmers. You know, they used to work 16 hours a day. And but my grandmother was also a healer. She was a village healer. Uh, and in Bombay, I experienced what was called a caste system. You know, India still has this very unfortunate system with a lot of people in America and the Indians in America don't talk about because most of them are from the upper caste. But India has a system of caste where you have the upper people, which are called Brahmins, and then you have different tiers. And then at the bottom, you have what are called untouchables or Shudras. And I learned in a very uh, uh, unfortunate way that I was one of the untouchable people because one day I was playing soccer with a kid and went, out, went to his house and his mother treated me like I was like a leper, told me to stand outside, gave me water in a different cup, didn't want me coming in and called me like the N word, the S word, Shudra. And uh, is you know, this so based I, upon the, the the darkness of your skin? It's based upon, yeah. I mean, it's primarily there's a big correlation between darkness of skin and where you are, uh, you know, and uh, the caste system. Uh, it's not always true, but by and large, it is true. Um, and this caste system goes back thousands of years. Initially, it was a guild system. You know, you had people who were blacksmiths, and people were supposed to be teachers, and you know. But later on, it devolved into an unfortunate system of where if, you know, it was a birth lottery. If you were born here, you were a Brahmin. If you were born here, you were supposed to be a coconut picker, which was what our caste goal was for the rest of our lives. And so my parents were pretty extraordinary people, Hotep, because my, uh, by any length of the imagination, my mother, who came from a broken family, the father ran away with the maid, was, should have never even got educated for women of her background. Somehow my mother, uh, gets educated and uh, becomes a math teacher at a time in India when women weren't even getting educated for that matter, someone of her caste. And my dad grew up in war-torn Burma. 
with bombs going off everywhere. Somehow he made it back to India. His great grandfather, who I remember well, had gone to Burma as an indentured servant, you know, to make his fortune. So you have two very interesting people who somehow meet in Bombay and then have me and my sister. But, you know, when I experienced that kid with that soccer situation, I asked my mother, you know, what was this about? And she said, oh, yeah, we're considered Shudras. And when she was a child and she would go to the well, they would shoo her away like a pig, Hotep. So that is the, the reality of the Indian caste system. Mm. So, you know, that so that I think spurred in me this kid who wanted to really understand political systems, you know, why there was oppression. Uh, to want to become a fighter on some level. And the other part of me grew up in, in this village in India where my grandmother was a traditional healer, worked 16 hours a day, didn't charge anything for health, but she practiced a traditional Indian uh, practice of Indian medicine where she could observe your face, predict what was going on in your body, and then she would come up with particular formulations for you. You know, it wasn't, it was what we would call today personalized medicine. So, you know, I grew up in both of these worlds uh, witnessing this. So, uh, is that, is that yeah. kind of like maybe uh, a holistic healer? Would a holistic healer, but India even today has a system of medicine you can go to. Uh, you can practice Ayurveda, which is, you know, several thousand years ago, yoga, Unani, which comes from the uh, Persian system, Siddha homeopathy. So in India, you can actually get all of these treatments. And the Siddha system or the Ayurveda system is five, 10,000 years old. You know, Western medicine is maybe a couple hundred years old. So, but these systems of medicine are practiced. People go to school for them. It's very, very, you know, deep uh, training. It's not like something you just go and, and learn, you know, you know, just off the cuff. But my grandmother learned it in the oral tradition and she never charged for anything. Every village in the, those days, Hotep, always had uh, someone like this, you know, who who did this um, for a uh, for a service. It was a noble service that you did. Oh yeah. Oh so yeah. I grew, up, I grew up in both of these worlds, man. Uh, watching on the one day, understanding this caste system. The other thing, seeing this woman with tattoos all over her arms, spitting tobacco. My grandmother working 15, 16 hours a day with leeches on her feet. You know, as a subsistence farmer who would heal people. Yeah. So I was motivated. How was this woman with no degrees able to do this? And why was this caste system? Mm -hmm. And for that, in, in that, you know, sort of environment is when my parents came here in 1970, okay. uh, you know, uh, at a time if you, you know, when we settled in Patterson, uh, uh, New Jersey, mm. uh, and you got to remember 1970s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You have the Vietnam War going on. Uh, you have uh, hippies. You have uh, wild stuff taking place. So this little traditional Indian family gets on their little uh, spaceship and lands in the United States. So that was the environment that I to asked you. So I came from India in this very rich environment of contrast. And then I came to the United States of contrast, primarily African-American community, right? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, the old, you know, all the old seventies cars, great Motown music and growing up, you know, in a very tough neighborhood in Patterson as a kid, that's mm. where I first started. And then went to Clifton and then Persephone and then ended up in Livingston. Okay. Uh, my parents kept moving, as you know, parents who care about education keep moving to the better public school systems. That's how they got school choice in those days. Right, right, exactly. So then what was Livingston like? Well, Livingston was a lot different than Patterson and Clifton <laughs> and Persephone. Livingston was pretty much predominantly very wealthy, all Jewish kids, um, very different than Patterson, which was all African-American kids and you had to learn how to fight, you know? Hell yeah. And I remember when I first went to Livingston, you know, my parents had a 
very modern house. So, you know, whatever money they made, they did it for the public school system. And I was frankly intimidated because, you know, these people had a lot of wealth, you know, and okay. my sister and I were the only dark kids in this school of 4,000 kids. Uh. So it was quite, this is 1977. Did you deal with any, any, you know, racism or anything like that? Or, well, you know, I've been dealing with casteism all my life from India. Right. And then here, I mean, I didn't deal with that really in Patterson, but I remember starting in Persephone, a uh, very interesting story. And I was, by the way, I wasn't just a nerd, you know, I was a really good student, uh, but also was on a 13 and 0 undefeated uh, halfback on a soccer team. Okay. Plus played baseball, could pretty uh, pitch pretty fast. And some people said I could have gone at, at least into the semi-pro. So I wasn't just a nerd, you know, I was pretty skilled at many things. And my parents brought me up that way. But what was interesting was in Persephone, um, you know, there was a chemistry exam that certain set of kids should be able to take to decide who could become the best uh, chemistry student. And what's fascinating was that the chemistry teacher did not allow me to take that exam. Okay, forbid me. And so I remember my mom and dad, who used to work very hard, coming home and they heard heard about this. And my mom, who was a fighter, got in the car and she said, "We're going to go talk to that teacher." And they went in and they bitched that teacher out pretty hard. Okay. And uh, and then he, you know, allowed me to take the exam and I and I, uh, you know, won. <laughs> that, that has not changed, man. If I talk to you about the U.S. Senate race where I legitimately got on the debate stage, they wouldn't let me run. You know, just now. We legitimately will talk about it in the vaccine issue. We, we had a whole yeah. thing set up. Uh, but my life has always been one of struggle. My mom said, it doesn't matter if you get a B, you're going to have to get an A plus to be the equivalent of the kid who got a B or a C. Yeah. So that's been the reality, man. It has not changed, believe it or not, since India. Nothing has freaking changed. Okay. You have to fight for everything. All right. So, so let me ask you this, and then we're going to you know fast forward a little bit. How would these people in this Indian caste system view a black guy like myself. They're totally they, racist, man. Look, we're, I, you know, I know you use, you know, there's the variation of the N word we can use, but we're all considered that, you know, my friend, you know, uh, Michael who's with blacks for Trump. He goes, look, we're all, you know, the N word. Okay. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, if you look at my genetic profile, it probably goes back to Ethiopia. Okay. Right. If you look at, I mean, we are the darkies. Okay. Of South India. And when I, to give you an idea, when I came to MIT in 1981, there were a lot of these Indian students. They would always try to figure out my last name because they wanted to figure out where I was because most of them were the Brahmins who came from India here, you know, on like robots, like AI robots, get their degree, get their PhD, get married and then get settled and they're done. They've achieved victory, glory in America. Okay. So many of my friends at MIT, in fact, most of them were poor blacks, poor whites and poor Hispanics uh -huh. because those guys, and still to this day, most of them are freaking racist. You know, they see me and they know that, holy shit, this kid is one of those darkies who we would never wanted even to come here. He made it here and he ain't being a good Indian. You know, I don't tilt my head. I don't sit in the lotus position. I don't talk like Deepak Chopra. Right. Uh, and this bothers them. Yeah. Because they were all trained to be a Gunga Din or a Gandhi who we can talk about, but who took advantage of the Indian people. So you have a whole history of people um, who basically exploited people. So most of the Indians here, you know, I don't even consider them Indians because most of the Indians in India are who I consider Indians. Most of these guys, they may be nice people, but they're freaking racist. Oh, wow. All right. So by the way, is the stream coming in all right for you? Everything up? 
Yeah. Yeah, it looks fine to me. I got excellent connection. Okay. This chat, let me know if there's anything wrong with the stream. Stream health looks looks fine on this side. I'm getting an excellent signal. Yeah, for for me, it's a little bit jittery, but maybe that's because it's going back and coming back. Yeah, well, the audio always come through, and this will be available now on okay. SoundCloud.com slash Hotep Jesus, thankfully. Now, I'm completely ignorant on uh, Indian culture, right? So over here, you know, we just say, like, we're, you know, we're racist. <laughs> we say, oh, the Patels, right? Like, because everybody's got their last name Patel. You know, we're ignorant. So tell me what's going on. Like, you know, there's a Shiva, the last name. And I'm sure this probably comes back to like royal kingdoms from ancient times or something like that. And there's Patels. What, how does this thing work? Why does everybody have the same last name for the most part? Is that part of the caste system? Yeah, you asked a great question. Look, the concept, first of all, you asked two questions, the last name and the caste system. You know, uh, if you look at American Indian culture, you know, the Native Americans here, they never had last names. It was like Sitting Bull, right? or Sequoia, right? Or whatever, right? Or Geronimo. Um, the last name develops when you started creating property. The day someone said, I own this piece of land, then they had to add the last name. Okay. Now, South Indian Dravidian culture, which is all those people that go back thousands of years in India, at one time were the original natives of India called the Dravidians. Right. 2,000 years ago, an invasion took place, and some people argue about this, right? Um, and those people were pushed down and, but those people were the original people, very much like the indigenous people. They didn't have a concept of ownership or property. So you didn't have last name. So my name, and, it's, and by the way, you won't find a lot of Shivas actually, and I'll explain that. So my name was Shiva. My dad's name is Ayadure. My mom's name is Meenakshi. You see, there's no last name. When we came to this country, because we come from that Dravidian line, they said, what's your last name? So my dad took my first name, and then he took his first name and made it my last name. So Shiva Ayadure, okay? Uh, okay. But you have typically the people of North India, okay? A little bit more of the lighter guys. And, you know, you, it's, it's, it's a long, again, a longer discussion. But by and large, the caste system, people had caste names. Patel typically meant the guys from the business caste, okay? Uh, okay. You, you, some, sometimes you may see people using the word name Ayer, A-Y-E-R, I-Y-E-R. Those are people who consider some better than everyone else, the Brahmins, okay? Okay. So when someone says, my name is Manish Patel, okay? Patel is actually his caste name. It's like blacksmith. You see what I'm saying? Right. Patels are typically the guys who run the little stores, right? Little traders and businessmen. And that's typically, they were the business people of India of the group in India from Gujarat, Gujaratis, okay? So in India, my mom used to say you can get discriminated seven different ways in America around three. So you can get discriminated by where you're from, what color you are, what language you speak, what caste you are, whether you're female or male, uh, et cetera, right? Yeah. So the Patels, which you probably have a lot down in Jersey City, Hoboken, et cetera, the guys running the shops, the initial wave of Indians who came here in, in the late 60s and early 70s where the, where the, the United States did merit-based immigration, let in all the really smart people who had brains in terms of skills, engineers, doctors, scientists. And in many ways, that was a brain drain. That's how my parents came here. Sort of the best of the best came here. The second wave was some of those people invited their cousins and et cetera, right? Right. Where people, who many of them didn't really have skills, right? But they could run, you know, they could trade, run a convenience store, those kind of people. This right. is by and large a second wave of immigration that took place. Um, and that's why you have, you know, 
like in Bart Simpson, whatever they, I think they took took down the guy up here or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> that second wave of Indians. Okay. Okay. And then you have now the current group of Indians. You know, some of them who are coming here for work. You know, on these H one B visas, and then you have the new generation of Indians who actually from here, right? The second generation who were born here. But that name Patel. Um, is a relatively common name. It's a caste name, but you won't find a lot of names like Ayadure, right? Right. Because we are from that, uh, you know, lower caste Dravidian tradition where we had to, we didn't have the concept of last name. Okay, got you. Perfect, great, excellent education. I'm gonna hop into some super chats. And then what I wanna do is I kinda just wanna say, what I wanna do is talk about the event that happened today that you uh, spoke about earlier. Then let's talk about uh, vaccines. Then we'll talk about your uh, political career. But first, let me uh, hop into uh, the Super Chats. John Lemley, as usual. What's up, John? Uh, $20 Super Chat. He said, I can tell it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm going to have to catch replay of it. Thank you, John. The replay will be available here as well as SoundCloud now. So you guys can listen to that in audio. Nick Barnes, $5 Super Chat. Thanks, guys. Cool. So today, something crazy happened, right? Like they canceled your event. Uh, they attempted to. They attempted to cancel it. We're still going to do it in New Jersey. Um, you know, uh, uh, the broader context is this. There's right now, there's a, an important event taking place in, in New Jersey. Uh, and that important event is there's a bill uh, that is coming up for vote in the Senate, which is about uh, the exemptions, right? Which is people want to eliminate your right to get exemption through religious exemptions, right? Right. That's coming up in in uh, New Jersey right now. For vaccines. For vaccines. Basically uh, saying that, you know, it used to be where, you know, if they said, hey, you know, the school wanted a vaccine, you could say I'm exempt because of religious reasons. And now they're exactly. saying there are no exemptions. Right. You must take these drugs. Exactly. Well, yeah. Or, or Well, no. So what they're saying is before, if you had a child, and you said, look, I don't want to give my child vaccines. You could go get a religious exemption. They had to accept it. Right. They want to remove what they consider a quote unquote loophole. All right. So that's so about a couple of weeks ago, you know, the bill went through the House and the Senate or the assembly in the Senate. The assembly voted for it, which means uh, people said, yes, we're going to eliminate religious exemptions. Then it goes to the Senate. Right. And then it goes to the governor for signature. Just so basic legislative process. So when it went to the Senate, uh, you know, the bill was in committee and it had to come out of committee to go to the vote. Now, two Democrats, uh, Lagan, Lagan and another guy, Gopal, Indian guy, uh, were going to crush it in the committee. They were, they were going to uh, vote. So it didn't go to the Senate for vote. Well, they got at the last minute thrown off the committee by the president of the Senate by a guy named Steve Sweeney. So he forced them to take it. That's uh, the, by the way, the Senate president and the Speaker of the House always have all the power. Okay, they have massive amounts of power. At the last minute, they can completely arm twist people. Wow. So that's why it went to the vote in the Senate, and they didn't have enough votes. They, they were going to lose it, so they didn't take the vote. That and and a big reason for that was because of the massive protests out there. Okay, remember politicians do this. They watch which way the wind blows. In other states like California and in Maine and New York, all these sort of, we'll talk about it, these people who try to play both sides told people to quiet down, simmer down, don't, don't, don't protest. And that's why they all lost there. 
When I got involved, I said, escalate the movement, protest like hell, because that's how you win. And they followed that advice and there was massive protest, five, 6,000 people showed up. These congressmen basically scared the bejesus out of them. So they weren't gonna vote in favor, it was very close. So the Senate president decided not to call the vote because he was gonna lose, Hotep, okay? So uh, now the legislative session ends on January 14th, which is coming up. Right. Weeks. So they have a couple of, so the, so the president of the Senate, Sweeney, who I invited to an educational forum, which I was gonna host in New Jersey, um, he has been squeezing the arm, right? Twisting the arm of people because he needs 21 votes, 20 senators, he needs 21 votes. So he's out there twisting people's arms, promising them stuff, money, all sorts of stuff. Committee assignments, you see there's all this jockeying. That's going on right now in New Jersey. Sweeney and the big pharma guys are twisting people's arms because if New Jersey falls, think about what this means. New Jersey, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, a lot of investment there by big pharma. If they fail, it's gonna be a domino. People are gonna say, you know what? That's how we win. We do what Dr. Shiva said. We protest on the ground. We build a movement, not just you know suck ass to legislators all day. That's what they want you to do. So this is why it's a momentous event politically and from a science standpoint. So what I did was about a couple of, about a week, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, um, I still, I, I went to Livingston High School, you know, just to give you the background, when I was at Livingston, remember I said I was the only kid there, the only non-Jewish kid. I had a lot of Jewish friends, but the history is Jewish people always considered they're the chosen people. You know, I grew up in that environment. Every time I'd succeed, a lot of jealousy there. You know, I, I like my mom said, get an A plus, to compete with the B, it's just the facts, okay? Yeah. Um, it's just, just true, you know? Yeah. But I, I excelled there and about four, by the way, Jason Alexander went to Livingston High School, Chris Christie went there, the governor, Harlan Coben. It's a very great public school. I was very fortunate to have amazing teachers. My high school chemistry teacher taught me the scientific method, Gerald Walker, he was awarded the presidential award or, uh, you know, for, for teaching, great teachers. This was in the 70s when teachers really cared, held three or four jobs, you know? Yeah. So I went into this amazing high school. That's where the school changed the rules. So I could go to Newark and create the world's first email system, which I did as a 14 year old kid. It was because of some really good high school teachers who allowed uh, the rules got changed. People would fight. You know, my uh, you know, as, as I've shared with you, when I was 14, I finished up calculus and my high school Livingston had no more courses to offer me. <laughs> so I got a. Um, uh, an opportunity to go to NYU and anyone listening, these wait, are the facts of the invention. Hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait one second. You were 14 and finished basically all the courses available. How do you do that? Were you independently studying? So here's the thing. In Parsippany, when I was in eighth grade there, uh, we had a great teacher. This is before the Department of Education screwed up education. He had the math program that he gave you the standard curriculum but if you wanted, so you still, if you wanted to excel, you could go, he listed out the whole syllabus. So I finished up two years in one year. Uh, okay? Analytic geometry. And so by the time I went, I transferred to Livingston in my ninth grade, his good friend was a principal at the junior high school in Livingston. And he said, Shiva is a very extraordinary student, change the rules so you, he can go to high school and study calculus. So when I was in ninth grade, they got a special bus and I got shipped to the high school to study with the seniors and I finished calculus. So I only had some humanities courses left, Hotep. Okay. okay? 
Got you. After 10th grade, there's no more courses. I've, I've gone through all the science and math courses. So I had, you know, you know, I love still English and history, you know, had those left. And my mother that year in 78 saw a little paper clipping. She was working in Newark as a programmer at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. And she had seen this little a paper clipping in a New York newspaper, which said a professor in Newark, Henry Mullish, was going to invite 40 students to come to Newark and study computer programming, computer science, in like a Navy SEAL-like intensive program. 40 students across the country would be selected. I was actually one year younger. I applied anyway and was very fortunate to get accepted. Okay. Okay. So and my mom would drop me off, you know, Newark over at the PATH station, and I would take the train in six in the morning as Ooh. a year old kid walking through Washington Park, people selling drugs. It was a wild scene, man. Yeah. Our first day in Newark, two guys come busting out of the bank thing, uh, stealing. You know, that's what that's what Bleecker Street, Washington Street was like. You know, oh, you yeah. walk through Washington Park, people like try before you buy, you know? <laughs> and there's 14 year old kids walking through there. And it was wild was, and, and that's where I went and I graduated top of the class. I mean, you taught you learned seven programming languages. Uh, basic, COBOL, ArtSpeak, Snowball. These are old languages, you know, Fortran. And the professor there was a guy called Henry Mullish. You can look him up. He settled in, in uh, Israel a couple of, last year. This year, actually, I went to, to his memorial service and I gave a talk. There was no C? There was no C language yet? Nope. This is before C. Wow. Okay? Before C, 1978, a computer had filled your room and my room, big mainframes you wrote on punch cards. But... I, uh, you know, did, and I also learned a programming language for graphics where you could do beautiful art pictures. I ended up winning that art award too. Oh, wow. So anyway, finished top of the class, come back as sort of a downer. Now you're coming back into high school. So what do I do? I'm, I'm, I'm a trained programmer. We, you went through like a Navy SEAL type program, educated at the Corian Institute of Mathematical Sciences, which is one of the elite universities. A high school teacher in Livingston High School, Stella Alexia, actually just passed away. She fought with the superintendent of schools, Mel Klein, and she said, this kid needs a different program or he's gonna get bored. <laughs> and they figured out a way that they arranged a bus so I could travel to Newark and I was given a full-time job by a guy who's still there, Dr. Les Michelson. He gave me a full-time job. So I had humanities courses and I'd literally go eight to 16 hours and I'd work sometimes two in the morning in Newark. A lot okay. of people still today in those days were afraid to go into Newark, you know, I wasn't. Yeah. And my friends became the secretaries, the janitors, the people, everyone there. They loved me. I loved them. And Dr. Michelson, uh, initially, I did some work on sudden infant death syndrome, why babies were dying in their sleep. Okay. I built some algorithms, what you would call AI today, to figure out when a baby was sleeping, a pattern, to figure out when it would stop breathing. That's called an apnea. Mm. I initially did that, but Michelson noticed I had really good skills of programming, and he gave me a big challenge. Now, many people over the age of 40 will remember in the 1970s or even now, many organizations, the way they, they had two communication systems for collaboration. You're in your office, I'm in, let's say we're both doctors, right? We used to use a phone. There was another system. There's no cell phones yet, there's no social media. They had the thing called the inter-office mail system. And that inter-office mail system, Hotep, was a very complex system. Now, they had these big microcomputers were just coming mainframes, you could send simple messages, you know, one-line messages, text messages. That's not what I'm talking about, but on those big, uh, uh, in those systems, every secretary was always a, the servant of a, 
a doctor or researcher, and she, and she was always a, a woman, right? Always on a desktop where they had the inbox, which is a wooden box, an outbox, which was another wooden box, drafts folder. Behind her, there were things called filing cabinets with folders, paper clips, a thing called a typewriter where you would take paper and you would put it in it, bond <laughs> paper, and you type a letter. Now, these memos had a very particular format, to, from, subject. And then sometimes if I was sending a letter to you and I wanted to hire somebody, right, I may CC my boss, okay? So you literally would put two, two pieces of paper, put a carbon paper, and you type away. Okay. The second paper is called a carbon paper. And let's say attach the resume. You would attach a resume, attach a paper clip. You'd put it in these envelopes, tie it together, and they had these pneumatic tubes. You'd put it in, it would shoot around the office. Oh, yes. Okay? This was the inter-office mail system. It was okay. a very complex. If you had to do 20 CCs, the secretary would be typing away 10, 20 times, you see? Yeah. So I was asked to convert that entire system, which was the medium of collaboration. If you're gonna hire someone, grant proposals, you'd attach it, you'd send it around the office, people would review it, they'd redline it. This is how work got done. It was the powerhouse of every major organization from the office of the president to the office of a engineering school, medical school. Wow. So I was asked to convert that entire system as a 14 year old kid. I wrote 50,000 lines of code in Fortran in 8K of memory. So I had to do memory segmentation. I mean, wild shit I did back then, man. Yeah. And I called that system email. Okay. It's not an obvious term. Why did I call it email? Because the operating system only allowed five characters, a term never used before in the English language. <laughs> wrote all the code, every feature that you see today, called it email. Won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, which was called the Baby Nobles of the Day. Oh. All right? Oh. And was a very humble, good Indian, okay? <laughs> I go to MIT in 1981. On the front page of the MIT newspaper, they highlighted three kids. Me and another kid out of the 1,041 students. So think about it. You got to be pretty, you know, supposedly smart to go to MIT. But yeah. out of those 1,041, I was one of the kids highlighted for creating this email system. I remember seeing that hotep. I was trained to be so freaking humble, man. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I put it down. And I saw the paper clipping of it. Okay. Okay. I went. I got elected student body president. Oh. Student body president in that year, and I, I was invited to the president of MIT's house, who was a guy called Paul Gray, who was a science advisor to Reagan at the time, Ronald Reagan. And he'd heard about me, and he said, and he pulled me aside. He goes, Shiva, you know, it's too bad that the Supreme Court doesn't understand software. They don't even allow software patents. You see, the the, the guys in Washington thought software was like writing something like a script or a movie. They didn't understand that it was like a digital machine, okay? Right. They didn't understand that. So, however, what Dr. Gray said was you should copyright it. Because in 1980, which I didn't know, the Computer Software Act of 1980 was passed by Congress, which said that you could use copyright law to protect software inventions. And it wasn't just putting a C hotep with a circle. Right. I had to send in all my 50,000 lines of code, went back and forth. There's no internet. You have to fill out these forms. I had no lawyer like Bill Gates, right? <laughs> my father wasn't a lawyer. I did it all on my own. And on August 30th, 1982, and I was about 17 or 18, the United States government officially recognizes me as the inventor of email. I have the copyright. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I wrote all the code, <laughs> called it email. I have the freaking copyright. Uh. 
There's no freaking controversy who invented email. So, so, so how much do you get paid for that? Where's the royalty on that? Great question. Copyright law only protects the literal code. If you change, it's like if you wrote, oh, yeah. if you wrote a story of uh, a, a young 12 year old boy and a girl fighting and the family not liking them, and you happen to call it uh, Jason and Gene. Yeah. But there's Romeo and Juliet, right? So yeah. copyright law doesn't protect ideas. It was only in 1994 to the Federal Court of Appeals said uh, uh, said that software is a digital machine, okay? So I don't get a penny, but had patent law been allowed then, I'd be a gazillionaire and no one would be questioning about the invention of email because no one questions whether Bill Gates invented DOS, which he didn't by the way, but because he made gazillions, they think he did it. Yeah. Or whether Mark Zuckerberg really was the first to invent Facebook, right? Yeah. But I was ahead of my times in many ways because the laws were behind, you know, but mm. I made money other ways. But my point is, right. email was invented in Newark, New Jersey. Uh -huh. one. It was invented not by the military industrial complex. <laughs> it was invented by a kid trying to help secretaries, women, who all the other mainly white people in their little white lab coats thought were stupid and could never use a computer. I helped them go from the keyboard uh, from the typewriter to the keyboard. That's what right. was done. It was a civilian application. Now, how does that, how does that proliferate? How, like, you know, yeah. to go from Newark to, you know, well, mass well, adoption worldwide. Yeah. So here's the thing. I am not saying that someone would not have invented email if it wasn't me. Right. Someone would have. It's like someone would have invented the airplane, right? right. If the right person didn't do it, right? Right. It was a convergence of office, computing, everything was coming together, but I was the first to do it. Now, when I created it, I put all my code, everything I did in the Library of Congress. Now you gotta understand, today when Apple creates something or IBM, right, what do they do? They basically are very, very, um, are very, very uh, non-disclosure agreements, secrecy, right? I mean, when we were creating this, we did it, me, you know, when Dr. Michelson's lab was fully open, I gave seminars, man. I said 50, 100, 200 people show up. We didn't say, oh, we're making email. HP was there, right? IBM would show up, right? We were sh totally sharing everything. We weren't like Steve Jobs, holy shit, who's gonna steal my stuff? We were open, open architecture. Okay. So if you look at the history of this, it goes into the Library of Congress in 1982. Shortly thereafter, 1984 is when Eudora comes out, right? And AOL, et cetera. You, it's not, I don't have to prove that they took my code, but the right. fact was I was the first to create email, call it email of the copyright. Right. It's like if the right person- first to use it outside of that office? Oh, it was used, well, it was used not only in that office across three networks. Remember, uh, Rutgers Medical School was not only in that office, it was over at New Brunswick. Right. Camden campus, Piscataway campus, I mean, you don't need the internet, by the way, to use email. This is a myth. In the old days, between 1978, from the time when I invented email up until 1992, email was an inner office application. People used to put a bunch of lands together and have these products running. Yeah. If you, in 1993, when I used to ask people in seminars, how many people have an email account? Out of a room of a, a thousand people, only two people had an email account. Mm. In 1993, email became a consumer application. Why? Because the World Wide Web came. Right. And that was the front end to the internet. Uh, and, and that's when Hotmail and Yahoo and all those guys came. Mm. But there's a lot of, so anyway, 
so email was an business application. Why? Because it came from the inner office mail system. Yeah. There's a direct line from there. Now, in I never spoke about this, didn't want credit for any of this. However, in 19, uh, two, 2011, my mother was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. Three months to live in, in a beautiful suitcase, Hotep, she had saved everything. Okay? And she had saved everything. The editor of Time Magazine, the only journalist to review it, he went through everything and he wrote an article, you can look it up, November 11, 2011, 11, 2011 called The Man Who Invented Email, 11-11-2011. Three months after that, the Smithsonian contacted me. They said, oh my God, we didn't know this was here. You have a treasure trove of documents. And it was them in the Computer History Museum. A good friend of mine said, put it in the Smithsonian. So on February 16th, 2012, they held a beautiful donation ceremony. This picture is there, this video, and it went into the Smithsonian. That evening, a young African-American reporter for the Washington Post interviewed me. And, and she wrote an article called Dr. Shiva Ayadure, honored as the inventor of email by the Smithsonian. And that's when the shit hits the fan, okay? Oh. It was like a new skull was found in Africa. <laughs> when it went into the Smithsonian, all these, quote unquote, historians who had already written the history of the email that was done by some white dude with, uh, who looked like a nerd. You see, you have to look like a nerd. You can't be a good looking Indian guy who lift weights and a strong, there's a segregation. You have to look stupid and look all fucked up. Excuse my language, right? Then you're a nerd, then you're qualified. This yeah. guy like a casting call, beard, glasses. And he did not write email. He, he All he did was he vote, wrote a caveman version of Reddit attaching text to the bottom of a file, did 15 minutes of change to, FT, to an FTP program, okay? What happened was Raytheon, a missile defense company, had bought the company he worked at called BBNN, and if you went to their website in 2012, the front of their website said Raytheon, inventor of email. Why? Because Raytheon was moving from the defense world, which missiles were, missile sales were coming down, into cybersecurity which is a $270 billion market. So when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, and they put that guy, that nerd's picture up, okay? He was their little mascot. So when my stuff went in, I threw a wrench into their bullshit. Ah. Well documented. So what you see is this, this uh, screwball historian, a, you know, a, frankly, a, a racist, okay? And we should discuss racism because there is racism. Republicans think there isn't, and the liberals think they own racism, okay? Yeah. There is real racism in this country, and it's never discussed, uh -oh. and, because they never let the darkies discuss racism. It's only for whiteies to discuss race, racism, unfortunately, uh -oh. okay? <laughs> no, because they don't want the real discussion of race, because it's don't. don't use the N-word, don't do this, pray to Martin Luther King, therefore you're not racist, right? But if you break on Malcolm X, if you use the N-word in the right way, they don't want you to do that, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And so what's happened is when it went into the Smithsonian, it was holy shit. Email came from Newark, New Jersey by this darkie, 14-year-old, and he ain't a good Indian. Okay, he talks back. That's what bothered them more than anything. And what was interesting for me was you have to understand, Hotep, up until that point, I've always fought for others. I never had to fight. You know, you, you can find a picture of me as a 19-year-old kid burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. Okay. MIT had tens of millions of dollars investments in apartheid South Africa. I, I led one of the biggest protests and we forced MIT to get rid of those investments, but it was a massive defiant protest. I made sure food service workers at MIT got better wages. I was a guy who fought against Monsanto. 
When I went to the Indi when I went back to India in 2007 on a brief scientific research, I was recruited by the Indian government to run the largest scientific center. I exposed corruption in India under death threats had to leave. But this time when these people called me an asshole, a dick, a fraud, it's quite amazing. Gizmodo called me all these names. In fact, one report said this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged. This is 2012, man, so everyone should be listening to this. Wait, where was that published? It was in a blog. So go on Gizmodo? What's that? On Gizmodo? Well, Gizmo they referred to Gizmodo, this, the shit that happened is, and I was teaching in 2012, one of the most important and popular, I was teaching at MIT, not like Elizabeth Warren taking $350,000, running my company and teaching an amazing course called Systems Visualization. And when it went into the Smithsonian, thousands of calls come into MIT saying, this guy's a fraud. This guy's a liar. He needs to be fired. Because I dared defend that I did invent email in Newark. You see? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it was quite wild, man. I couldn't believe it. All my four degrees didn't mean shit. No one at MIT defended me. Why? Because the narrative is when you go to MIT, then you're anointed. You get, you see what I'm saying? You get hooded like the priesthood. Then you are an inventor. And you got to understand between 1981 and 2003, when I'm at MIT, I won every major award. I won the Eleranta Science Award. I won the Fulbright Scholarship. I was on the front page of MIT because it was good to have the symbol of inclusivity and diversity. I was being a good darkie, you see? A good Indian. No, seriously, man, let's talk about that. It's what it is. Yeah. When I dared say that email was not invented at MIT, that it was done in Newark, that throws a wrench into this long bullshit that all great inventions must come out of Silicon Valley or MIT or dropouts out of Harvard that it sure couldn't come out of Newark by a 14 year old Indian kid. But if you're Mozart and you're six years old and you have blue eyes and blonde hair, that's cool. Uh-oh. Okay, no, no, white people, if you're listening, you gotta understand this. And by the way, a young white guy is the one who created TV. <laughs> it's not about race alone, it's about where it comes from. Carlo yeah. Farnsworth, a very smart kid in Franklin, Idaho, a town of a little village is the one who saw how the cows did this pattern. He used that to create the rap. He created TV. Sarnoff stole it from him. Now he didn't have to deal with the race issue. He just had to deal with the issue. It didn't come out of big business, but they also crucified him for 60 years. Now there's a statue of him in Washington. In my case, it's race, class, caste, all of it. Yeah. So I got a much more difficult problem. Yeah. Because you can't have now, in the middle of this, it gets even more interesting. There's a guy, Walter Isaacson, who wrote the biography on Steve Jobs. In uh -oh. the middle of this controversy, Isaacson writes this book called Innovators of the Digital Revolution. Okay? Now, you would think email would be in there. Innovators of the Digital Revolution. It's being written in 2014. Not one mention of email. And everyone in that book is all white guys. In fact, one white woman. And in the book, he says, all great inventions come out of the military industrial academic complex. And he, and, and he attributes one of the great guys was Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush was the president of MIT in 1940s. And he's the one who created Raytheon, that same company, which was denying the fact that I invented email. Uh. So what I'm saying is the invention of email is a very important story. It's not just about me, but it's about who is a creator and who is not. It's about who is determining who is the innovator and who's not. It's a freaking caste system. Uh. And MIT and all a small set of people think they can anoint when you're in the club, when you're not in the club. I was in the club when I was 
getting all the awards at MIT. But when I said email was done and talked, spoke about the facts, they unleashed hell on me. Gizmodo wrote three defamatory articles and I couldn't find any lawyer to represent me. They'd say, ha, 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 Al Gore, ha, ha, ha. Is that what you're saying? You know, the Al Gore invented internet. Oh, Finally, wow. I found a lawyer, Charles Harder, who had just sued Gizmodo for putting out that sex video of Hulk Hogan. And he okay. won $140 million and it was on appeal. I went to Charles. Charles looked at all my stuff. He goes, Jesus Christ, you invented email. It's obvious. He took my case on contingency. We sued for $35 million. 30 days after I sued, Gizmodo claimed bankruptcy. Gets even more interesting. I get appointed to be the chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gizmodo by the banks. Oh, or wow. So great karma. We sold them. I got a million bucks. And they were forced to remove those three articles. Oh. Okay. Then Google sponsored another idiot to try to sue me. I mean, not to sue me, to again defame me. We sued him and we settled recently. He didn't like settling. He was talking free speech nonsense. Free speech is right, but truthful free speech, the First Amendment, doesn't promote you to defame people and lie and call people all sorts of names. It's truthful free speech. So anyway, what I'm trying to say uh, is that I've always been fighting also, right? In yeah. addition to being the warrior for science, you know, being a good scientist, I've also been a fighter. And the email controversy was beautiful because it forced me, it was a very interesting journey, man, it's very deep, because it's easy to fight for other people, but when I had to say shit, you know, I was at a point, oh my God, it's like I've talked to people who've been raped. They said, sometimes they think they did something wrong. And I said, well, maybe I didn't invent email. Maybe I'm lying. And then I had one of my students at MIT, he went and read every manuscript written prior to 1978. And we find a document. This is why I believe there's a God. And the document is written by this guy, David Crock of shit, or Crocker, that's what we call him. <laughs> and he had written in 1977, that at this time there is no, it is impossible to create at the inner office mail system in electronic form. And he was the big theorist of the time, writing a 1977 RAND report. RAND is one of the big military organizations. So it's incredible that I've even had to fight this much. Mm. I wrote the code, called it email, I have the freaking copyright. That's why if this was done at MIT, it probably would have been acceptable. Yeah. Maybe if I was a blonde haired kid growing in a rich suburb like Livingston and I was white with a certain name, maybe there would be no issues. Yeah. So we need to wake up to the fact it's not even race anymore, it's caste. Yeah. We have a caste system in this country. It just so happens I happen to be dark, okay? And have, but I'm telling you, if I was from Newark and I was a white kid and I, it would be the same thing, just like Philo. My issue is, I have multiple layers, like my mom said, of oppression I deal with. <laughs> the problem they have is that uh, I'm not a good Indian. That's what really bugs them. Yeah. Most guys would, okay, okay, I didn't invent the email. Okay, very good. Bye-bye, right? <laughs> That's what I would have done, man. Okay, okay, you're right, right? Okay, okay, I'm not going to raise, right? But I wasn't willing to do that, man. I'm, yeah. a I'm a New Jersey kid, and I learned how to fight from working class people that I grew up with who taught me how to you know, mow lawns, how to paint how to work freaking hard. Yeah. I grew up with everyday people in that university who are, you know, most of them African-Americans who I knew had nothing. And every time I remember my grandparents in 1975 when I left India who lived in huts, you know, who had nothing. Those are my people. So I don't give a damn about what these people think. Yeah. So uh, that's why these people are so afraid when a guy with an MIT PhD 
who's done the work, who went, who's won all the awards, who's an esteemed scientist starts speaking out against vaccines. Yeah. Because it's their worst freaking nightmare. Yeah. 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 Jersey, Jersey, we breathe a different pedigree of people. Speaking of Jersey, Chad Lemoyne in the Super Chats 499, he says, this whole story is just to pump up Jersey. Shaking my head. Just kidding, Hotel. Yo, Jersey's on the map, Chad. You better watch well, out, man. Well, well, here's the thing. You know, if you look at New Jersey, when I was working in that medical school, I was 14. People, I was, you know, it was a small lab. I was treated like an adult hotel by Dr. Michaels. And the rule was I would come in. I'd come in with my briefcase, organized. I had my own desk. I worked. The, the rule was I'd be treated like an equal by all these other people. There were there was a physicist, Phil Goldstein. There was, uh, you know, a lot of great people in that lab and a lot of smart people. New Jersey, that New York area has a lot of freaking smart people, but they haven't done their marketing well. So wow. MIT and Silicon Valley gets all this credit. But that area has produced some in, in addition to the invention of email. Yeah. You know? But the problem is people are embarrassed to look at their own greatness sometimes. You know, New wow. Jersey, has a lot of great people and down to earth people. Boston, Massachusetts, one of the most racist places. It's overrated. You know, seriously, when I came to MIT in, two, two, in my second, when I came to my freshman class, I was sitting around studying computer science, already done all the stuff. By Bill. It's like a mechanic who's built super cars and he's studying mechanical engineering. It's like nonsense. Yeah. But, and what I also noticed was many of these people are trained to look and think what intelligence is. I would see kids at MIT, Hotep, who'd come in as a freshman year, normal looking kids. Suddenly by the end of freshman year, they have weird nasally voices, making weird twitches. I'm being serious, man. Like I thought you had to behave like a nerd to be intelligent. Yeah. You see to what be, I'm saying? They wanted to be part of that club. Yeah, it's like the club, right? You have to speak like this, talk like this, then you're a nerd, then you're yeah. intelligent. Yeah. So I, you know, it, you know, I, I moved off campus. I lived in Dorchester, an all black neighborhood for yeah. two of my years at MIT because I couldn't deal with this nonsense. Right, okay. Right. But and I, no one even told me about MIT. No one at Livingston told me until two weeks before I applied. And it wasn't them. My mom had helped these two women who got one of them got thrown out by her husband. She met at the stop and shop or the A&P and she let him stay in our house in the basement apartment we had. And one of them had a boyfriend who said, Shiva, you should go to this place called MIT. And I was I applied to Stevens and I think Princeton at that time. Right. And I said, what's this? He goes, it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he showed me the application, which is dumb. I said, this looks like a mental institute. It looked crazy. <laughs> and I wasn't going to apply. It looked, something about it didn't strike me right. Yeah. So he came back two weeks, essentially two days before the application was due, and he wouldn't leave. So I took a pencil and I filled out the application. I got accepted. And I remember coming to MIT to this day, walking up the 77 Mass Ave, and I saw these people who looked really sick, like physically sick. And I went back and I said, I'm not going here. These people look ill. And my then my high school teacher, because you know the teachers in Livingston get credit, you know, the the the, the high schools are rated by who they place where. Then they suddenly started, oh no, you should go to MIT. Uh. And they, they convinced me to go because Boston was a cool city. And that's what brought me to MIT. Right. But the day I came to MIT, man, it wasn't about science. I, I learned how to fight systems. I learned about systems. Okay. I started doing medical research. I learned, you know, that's what 
I came to Boston about. Right, right. You know? So so I want to just talk about race really fast, and then we're going to – I just want to touch on it really, really quick because you made a great point. You said uh, Republicans want to act like there's no racism and liberals want to have a monopoly over it. Why – why do Republicans or the conservatives want to dodge the race question and act like it doesn't exist and minimize it? Because they feel guilty, okay? Because they haven't addressed it and they know that it does exist, but they don't know how to deal with it, right? And because they don't, they haven't put the intellectual rigor into understanding it, they let the liberals who are fake intellectuals own it. So uh, what's happened is the liberals basically come in and they say, don't use the, can I say N-I-G-G-A on this thing you, or not? You say it. Okay. I'm not going to say the ER, but yeah. if you don't use a nigger word, then you're not racist, right? Okay. That's that's what they say. Okay, so that's their check mark. Okay, you're not racist now. Okay, uh, you must bless down to Martin Luther King as a great fighter, not Malcolm X. Okay, check. Now you're not a racist, right? Check. You believe in affirmative action. Now you're not a racist, okay? But the reality is, as I've said, using the N word, in many ways, we're all niggas on the white liberal plantation. That's yeah. what we are. That's yeah. what we've become because the white liberals are the biggest racists. When I put, when I ran for U.S. Senate as an independent, I put only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, and I put Warren's headdress. It was a great campaign. We would be distributing flyers, and all the white liberals who all look like Warren would call me a racist. I said, you know what? You're a racist because Elizabeth Warren used race to advance herself. That's racism. Putting a headdress, using the N-word, whether I believe in Martin Luther King or not, that's not racism. You see, the white liberals have bounded racism into this little box. And as long as you're in that box and you're not racist. Meanwhile, they're the biggest racist. They're the ones who wanted to deny the fact that a dark-skinned guy in New Jersey denied invented email. All the white working-class Trumpers actually know the facts. They, I don't see them attacking me. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's the white liberals, as, as Malcolm X said, the northern wolves. They're the racists. And if you look at Massachusetts, it's the center of the center of the center of racism. Oh. Because when the British lost, they didn't get on a boat and go back to London. They became embedded in here at institutions like Harvard. Right. Okay. And we'll come back to that. But the point is... So the Republicans and they, the Republicans do this on every freaking issue. They don't fight climate change hard because they don't have, because they don't. So they let the liberals own it. They don't fight the gun issue hard because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to fight the vaccine issue hard because they don't know how to do it. And then when a guy like me comes to help them, they want to deny it because internally uh, they're part of the establishment, the establishment Republicans. When Trump comes, they want to deny him because he's willing to throw bombs at them. Right. But the bottom line is the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment are one. OK, the liberals are just smarter. The yeah. establishment Republicans are just stupid. OK, yeah. that's yeah. what the reality is. So that's what you have. So what you have is there is racism. And the racism I'm talking about is the fact that we never built infrastructure in inner cities. That's racism. When the civil rights movement took place, the Kennedys selected Martin Luther King. Great speech, don't get me wrong, but it was a freaking circus. Malcolm and all those people were pushed to the sidelight. In India, there were people who wanted to have a good, a good bloody revolution and kick out the British, which would have been good. Instead, they brought in this guy, Gandhi, who was a racist, imposed him on the people of India. He manufactured a quote unquote transfer of power. There was no Indian independence. OK, 
and India had 70 years of suffering and uh, black, white men with crowns left. Meanwhile, brown men with white hats took over. So in every place, that's what's happened. You go, go look at Africa. So the white liberals, now it's a multiracial aristocracy of liberals, including the Obamas, are all very good at perpetuating real racism. So the inner cities after civil rights never got addressed. We never built infrastructure there. We gave people some bones. Okay, we'll let a few of you into college and we know you're gonna fail anyway, okay? So we'll give you some programs. And then they created a black bourgeois, a couple of Obamas and Malika Obama and those kind of people, right? Or Barack Obama. They didn't uplift the vast majority of black folks or poor white folks by putting infrastructure in, which yeah. would have cost them. So over and over again, what you see is the white liberals, and now it's a multiracial aristocracy of liberals, do not want to understand, do not want to address racism because they know they are the real racists. Mm. And they erased their racist towards poor whites, they're racist towards poor blacks, poor everyone, right? Yeah. It's a past issue now. Yeah. It's an aristocracy now, man. Yeah. You know, I'm running for US Senate. I'm a Republican running. Governor Bill Weld is a Republican. Charlie Baker, Bill Weld, a Republican, has endorsed Joe Kennedy, who's a Democrat. They're so afraid of the darkie, man. Not only the darkie, but the fact that I'm an untouchable from India. You see, that, so this is going to be an interesting election. That's why I think we're living in amazing times, because it's an opportunity to realize we live in a caste system. My parents thought they were leaving the Indian caste system, but we've entered the American caste system. Yeah. It's no longer Democrats versus Republicans. It's about, are you in the in crowd or are you in the out crowd? You know? Where, where are you running? What state? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Okay, damn. Right in the yeah. heart of the heart. Of the it, it, Massachusetts is the epicenter of the swamp of the swamp. Mm. And Harvard is a sewer that feeds that swamp. This is the truth. <laughs> all, yeah. all, you can trace every economic calamity by and large, without hyperbole, to some guy who graduated out of Harvard. Look, that guy, Jonathan Gruber, the MIT guy or MIT, he's the one who said, people are stupid, I can sell them Obamacare, right? People should go look up Jonathan Gruber. Mm. And there's a great YouTube interview with Jonathan Gruber and Trey Gowdy. It's quite amazing. Oh. And here's a professor at MIT who should have been fired. He called people stupid. He knew Obamacare was garbage, and yet he sold it through. Oh, oh. We got super chats. Uh, shout out to T West Friday Super Chat. He said, Raw interview. This is what I'm here for. Word. I hope the chat is enjoying this. I hope the viewers are enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. This is this is epic. It's already epic. We're only an hour in. Um, now let's talk about what the Democrats tried to do to throw a monkey wrench in your event against the vaccines. Yeah, let's talk about that. So a uh, couple of weeks ago. Going back to Livingston High School, uh, I went back to the the uh, the principal there and the head of the science department who have a very good relationship because several years ago, um, we got a bunch of the Livingston High School students involved in some research I was doing in my company, which I'll talk about Cytosol, to show how genetically engineered foods at the molecular level are different than organic foods. So I had a bunch of the students involved. I didn't have to because it was my way of giving back to my high school. And in fact, I put those five or six students as authors on a paper I wrote, which is a great thing for them. Many of them got into some great schools. So I called up those and, and they held a event there where we had a big public forum where I think it was 
couple thousand, I think a thousand people showed up, uh, 700 to a thousand people. It was a big event where we educated the public in New Jersey about uh, genetically engineered foods. You know, I didn't get paid a cent for it. I went back there. I did it as a public service uh, to New Jersey and Livingston. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, Hotep, I called Mark Stern and Brian Carey, very nice guys. And I said, look, there's a vote coming up, as you guys know, in New Jersey. On, uh, uh, it's, we didn't know when it was coming up. Um, I would like to educate people. I said, what, I said, when I was a, by the way, the guy who called is my AP chemistry teacher because I just reached out to him, Gerald Walker. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I said, look, I said, what is happening across this country is the scientific method is taking a backseat to scientific consensus. Mm. So what I mean by that is, you know, when I was in, in ninth or 10th grade, Mr. Walker taught me the scientific method. Well, what is the scientific method? The hypothesis, huh? hypothesis, uh, exactly. experiment, uh, conclusion, and go, and then again, right? You go around, you're right. So you, you observe something in nature, an apple falls from the tree, and you say, oh, okay, my hypothesis is something, right? That the earth has gravitation, it pulls that apple down, Right. And then you do an experiment, right, to test your hypothesis. You gather the data and you build a model. So let's say Newton built a model F, the force that the Earth pulls that up, or the force between two objects is G times M1 times M2 over R squared, right? So that was this. And then he tested it, tested it, tested it, and eventually becomes Newton's law of gravitation, right? Right. Now, that is a scientific method. And once you have a law which explains what is happening, Sometimes people try to go even deeper than the law and try to explain why it's happening. Mm. That's called a theory, capital T, like the theory of relativity or the theory of general relativity by Einstein was trying to explain the law of gravitation. And again, a theory is only as good as an experiment that breaks it, okay? But science is always recognizing that you have to do this process, right? That is the scientific method. And the scientific method doesn't give a damn about what color you are, whether you're black, white, how good looking you are, how much money you have. When you make that hypothesis, which uh, Richard Feynman called a guess, and Richard Feynman said, it doesn't matter what background you come from. If your guess is wrong, it's just wrong. You're wrong. Okay? doesn't matter. What's beautiful about science doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, what freaking opinions you have. Right? In the, when Galileo, prior to when Galileo uh, made his discovery, the Catholic Church passed what's called the Edicts of the Council, the Edicts of Tr the Council of Trent, which said that anyone who comes against anything that says in the Bible will be considered a heretic, right? Right. That was, and those laws were used to basically vilify Galileo, because Galileo basically had all this enormous data showing that the earth goes around the sun, not the sun goes around the earth. Heliocentrism. Heliocentrism, right? Versus the geocentric concept, right? Yep. Uh, so he was vilified by using those edicts, right? Well, this past year, Chuck Schumer, a complete moron, okay, passed a bill, is trying to get a bill through Congress. I mean, these people are actual just evil people. They have... They're basically manipulators. Has a bill in Congress. I think it's called Bill 791. I may get the number wrong, which says that if anyone says anything against climate change, or more specifically, the government should not sponsor any discussion on climate change at all. Okay. 
because there's scientific consensus that it's taking place. So no government agency could have conferences, debates, discourse on it. Uh, that is eerily similar to the Council of Trent's edicts. Uh, okay? It doesn't matter if 99% of the world thinks the sun goes around the earth. It doesn't matter. If one, if you have the data, the opposite is true, and the evidence, that's the truth. It does. It's science is not about a, a, a vote. Okay. Right. So that is where we're at, Hotep. We're at a point where politicians have replaced the scientific method with scientific consensus. This is very, very freaking dangerous on mm -hmm. so many levels. Mm -hmm. And in order to enforce scientific consensus, what do they do? They choke freedom. So you choke freedom, which means no more discourse, right? By choking freedom, you can't have, you can never uncover the truth because you basically violated the scientific method. Mm. And when you don't get the truth, you can never identify the real problem in a situation and you can never innovate the real solution. You get a fake problem, CO2 is a pollutant, fake problem, antibodies are the measure of immune health, one single measurement, and then you create a fake solution. We got a, the Green New Deal, right? We got to lower CO2, which is ridiculous. You know what happens when the CO2 level goes below 220 parts per whatever million or billion? All life on earth dies, okay? So what we're living in is a bunch of educated, vulnerable elites who, are, who go to school today, who have a big debt, $200,000 in debt. They have to get A's. So they listen to whatever their professors say, and their professors are ass-sucking up to get government grants. So they're people pleasers. So you have one ass-kissing to another level of ass-kissing. And these people are getting college degrees, know very little. They're vulnerable elites, as Dick Lindzen says, mm. okay, for, a former emeritus professor at MIT. Meanwhile, the good news is that people actually know what's going on are everyday working people, because they have common sense. The working person says, this doesn't make sense. CO2 is a pollutant. This doesn't make sense. Working mothers, why my child, uh, you know, I, I took my child and I gave him vaccines. He's all screwed up now. They actually are seeing it on the ground. Mm. So the elites are over here in their little ivory towers thinking they're so much smarter than everyday people, thinking that only the invention of email could take place at MIT. It couldn't occur. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They yeah. are removed from reality. And that's what we're living in now. We're living in a, in a very, very interesting world that people are cocooned and they can live in lies. Um, so when I went to Livingston, it was, hey, look, the scientific method's under attack. I learned the scientific method here in Livingston, New Jersey. There's an issue coming up where people think the science is settled. This guy Sweeney said, you know, there's no science proving vaccines are risky. And so I wanted to give a talk to the students, I actually had prepared a little assignment. They were going to have to read three papers called The, Mo the Theory of the Modern Immune System. And uh, that was going to be in the afternoon to the biology students. And in the evening at 7 to 9.30, uh, 7 to 8.30, was going to be an event for all the public to come. And I invited all the senators, Hotep. Very nice letter. Please come. You know, nothing trolling about it. You know, just very, nothing sarcastic. And uh, that's what happened. So. The, the, the guys who support people like Pete Buttigieg, okay? The Democrats. In fact, one woman said, you're an anti-Semite. Call me an anti-Semite, okay? 
And, and she thinks because I use the word that we're all niggas on the white liberal plantation, I'm not calling someone else that. I'm calling myself that, you idiot. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And that I went to a free speech rally, which is up on my Twitter feed, okay, which basically says that the back of my banner said Black Lives Do Matter, no to Montana, and I was ripping Hillary Clinton for being a racist. I was exposing Elizabeth Warren who voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. And these white liberal racists, you know, want to protect Hillary Clinton, who is a racist. You know, they want to mm. protect Elizabeth Warren, who is a racist, who used race to get all everything else. So, again, they've defined their thing and they don't want a darkie like me calling them out. So they call me a white supremacist. These people are crazy. And an anti-Semite. OK. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with this. <laughs> I'm familiar. It happened to me. <laughs> Here, I have been helping. You know, I was just in Israel. I, a lot of, you know, Dr. Michelson's Jewish. Uh, Mel Roth is Jewish, who helped me. You know, all these people are Jewish people. You know, even among Jews, maybe there's a separation between the anti-Trumpers and the pro-Dems, you know? The working class Jews, I, I haven't had a chance to do the dynamics, you know? Right. Noam Chomsky is one of my mentors. He's a Democrat, but he's a radical guy, right? Yeah. So... Uh, I think it's so. So these people went on, uh, uh, called up the supervisor, uh, superintendent. So when I had the meeting, you know, I have a nice letter. Everything is set. The to the talk is going to be entitled "Beyond Vax, Anti-Vax: A Modern Framework." It's a modern scientific framework of immunity for discourse and conversation. This is a MIT PhD scientist. Just one month ago, I was invited by the National Science Foundation to give the distinguished invited lecture on this. No one had an issue, but a bunch of freaking racists, that's what they are. Because I ain't being, a, and one of the women who did this, who called me an her husband, looks like a Brahmin boy, you know? Uh oh. And he's a big Buttigieg supporter, okay? So what you have is, this is like cognitive dissonance big time for them. Oh my God, MIT PhD guy, he's gonna talk of nice scientific talk. We can't have that. Yeah. So, but uh, mark my words, we will be in Livingston on January 6th, and I will be- Oh, wait, they, they attacked your Twitter first, right? Well, yeah, well, everyone, if you look at the Twitter, everyone's saying great things. It's one or two people. Right. And you have, yeah, one or, you know, this talk will never take place. And woman, and woman said, you will not come into my town without a fight. Okay? Yeah. So when you really look at it, the- multiracial white liberal aristocracy is the biggest racist mm. and they have become they're the democratic party is no longer the party of the working people they're the party of the aristocracy mm -hmm. and they abuse black folks they abuse working people they take advantage of every race of people and they particularly take advantage of the poor white working class mm -hmm. that's what they truly take advantage of mm -hmm. And, you know, and unfortunately, they have people like Bruce Springsteen, who I used to like, you know, who's works for them now. Does he? Yeah, man. Damn, Bruce. Bruce freaking Bruce. Bruce was on Epstein's Island, too. Oh, don't tell me yeah, that. I'm telling you, man, I used to love Bruce. And I just saw this. And, you know, you got to wonder why. I'm, I'm trying to tell you that the, we, we live in extraordinary times. And mm. the only way things are going to change is through people's movements revolutionary movements of everyday people. And that's what happened in New Jersey, those 5,000, 6,000 people, bottoms up. What they do to screw up movements, so except they put in these not, not so obvious establishment people, the Bernie Sanders, in, you know, these people come in between. 
mm -hmm. making a good game. But their goal is to funnel people off the streets, like Jesse Jackson did this in 1984. Al Sharpton does this, take people off the streets and into their pocketbooks, you know, and right into the Democratic or Republican establishment. Oh. It's a physics of change. All change has always occurred by everyday people rising up from the bottom up. And what they do is they destroy those movements by not the establishment, but the not so obvious establishment. And that's how they destroy movements. So you can see it even in this vaccine movement. In, in California, they you know parachute in Bobby Kennedy, parachute in these other guys, as though only the Kennedys can be the spokesman for the people, right? Mm -hmm. They lost in California, they lost in New York. You know, that guy charges $30,000 for, for a talk, that's how, what Kennedy's about, okay? Sounds good, but he's, but they haven't built a groundswell movement bottoms up. Yeah. They don't want, they want to decide who the leaders are, man. They don't want someone like me, who's of the people, for the people being their leader. They want one of their own. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. The white liberals choose their leaders. Oh, you can't, Shiva talks, uh, he, he talks too defiantly. And one of the ways the oppressors screw people is to control language. When in the old days, when one army took over another army, they stopped them from speaking their language. And nowadays, oh, you can't use that word. Some, some woman said, you can't use the word science ain't settled. Ain't is not a word. It's like, fuck off. <laughs> it's like ain't is a word. It's used by people. It is a word. It's a word. Like many words, just because you don't use it, doesn't mean it's not a word. It's a word. Yeah. So these people try to control language. They try to control what their leader looks like, smells like, right? Yeah. Again, an Indian guy is supposed to shake his head, sit in the lotus position, then he's a good Indian. Uh-huh. So I think we I, I think that's why I'm excited because the vaccine issue, man, is an amazing issue. Because I've been on the path of you know fighting as an activist, as a full-time scientist, you know. And here, the vaccine issue is an integration of all those. It's a, a destruction of science or an attack on science because they want to censor science. It's an attack on freedom, trying to own 7.2 billion people's bloodstream. Yeah. And then it's a violation of health because they have assumed that antibody is the measure of a resilient, healthy system. When let's that talk about that. Let's talk about the antibody issue. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's, let's, so let's talk about some science. Look, what is health? Let's start with that. What is a healthy system? Okay. So, you know, I have three other degrees in engineering. My, my undergraduate is in electrical engineering, my master's in mechanical engineering. I have another master's in visual design and my PhD is in biological engineering. By the way, all those four departments are rated number one in the world for MIT. Okay. Okay. And to get into MIT is a big, big thing. Only 50% of people make it through the PhD programs. You know, I was considered, if you talk to my, one of the smartest guys who went there, and I'm saying this just to set my credentials, because this is what bothers those people. Okay, so- The fact that you have the credentials, you know, to back up what you said. Not, yeah, not only that, I get invited by Harvard Medical School to speak on this, on precision medicine. I, You look at my resume, I've spoken at all the biggest institutions in the world. Yeah, Long the ones they endorse. Huh? The ones they endorse. The ones they endorse, and on top of it, I. My PhD work at MIT was creating a new technology which can model diseases on the computer. Mm. Okay. And I've used that to discover a drug for pancreatic cancer, which I got allowed by the FDA. Pharma, I've worked with pharma. So it's not like I'm a, if I was a big pharma guy, I would be pro vaccine. So this is totally dissonant for them, right? My goal is hey, look, there's so many different medical interventions. 
modern Western medicine came from uh, wartime medicine. Like if you got your head blown off or you got your arm cut off or, you know, you got an extreme crisis. Well, yeah, you better probably take some Advil. You probably better get surgery. You know, uh, I'm sorry, curcumin, turmeric is not going to help you in that situation. Okay. Yeah. Eating green tea is not going to help you if your arm's blown off. You need some microsurgery done. Okay. Yeah. Western medicine is amazing after you get screwed up because that's where it came from. It came from wartime medicine. Eastern medicine, these yogis would observe some something growing for days. They'd mix foods. It was about observation, slow time scales, and they learned prevention. So my view is you need both. This one's good after you get in a knock on wood, no one gets in a car accident and listening to this, right? Something horrible happens. Western medicine, great. Eastern medicine is about long life maintenance of health, right? And 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 uh, so anyway, so I've studied both systems. So my technology, Cytosol, helps you model these molecular pathways, et cetera. So I've been studying the immune system at least for the last two decades, okay? My PhD thesis, I tweeted it out. Half of it is on the immune system, at least half of it. So what are we talking about here? So what is a healthy system? Okay, so what's a system? A system is anything you see that's composed of a bunch of parts interconnected. A building, a skyscraper is a system, right? A bridge is a system. Your body is a system. You know, this cup of chai tea is a system. Okay, everything is a system. So what makes a healthy system? Well, one of the principles that you study, uh, one of the properties is called resilience. So resilience means uh, a system which can take a beating, a stress, and bounce back. In fact, it bounces back much stronger than when it before the beating. Okay. Simple, simple example. You... Go lift weights, okay? You go do some bench press. Well, the first day you're aching. Next day you go do it again. Well, okay, I lifted 130, now I'm lifting 150. Well, you, you, you feel pain, your muscle fibers are torn, they rebuild, you take enough protein, you know? And then you get up to 225, whatever, right? Right. That's resilience. You hit stress, your body gets stronger. You hit stress, your body gets stronger, right? Uh, if you live in a nice, quiet world of everything clean, and then you go out, you're gonna get sick, right? You're, I grew up in India with a lot of dirt, right? You're supposed to, you know, I have, um, you know, two dogs, they go play, you know, knock on wood. I don't get sick, even less sick with these dogs. There's a uh, data that shows kids who have dogs around 70% less ear infections, okay? We're supposed to be exposed to pathogens. Your body learns to fight back and it gets stronger. Okay. okay. Um, a building, a, a, a good skyscraper, they build it to have a certain amount that it can take a certain, if it's built too strong, it snaps. Right. right? So the key point here is that natural systems or man-made systems, the strength of them is measured by resilience. Gotcha. Resilience means you take a stress and you can bounce back stronger, right? If you leave your house and if you leave your house closed for two months, it's going to get old. You have to have a friend come over, turn on the pipes, use the toilet, right? It gets rusty and old. You're supposed to use things, okay? So what is a resilient system? A body. A body, a resilient body system, when it comes to the immune system, is the same principle. It's supposed to be exposed to stuff, and then it learns and it gets stronger, okay? So this is a broad theory. So let's talk about vaccines. In China and India, and in fact, Africa, uh, people knew that when one person got sick, it was good to expose other people to that sick person sooner than later so that person could build the immunity. 
In China, for example, they had a technique where they would take the pus of, let's say, some disease and shoot it literally into someone's nose. I mean, you can look at it online. In Africa, they learned the technique of variolation. When someone got, let's say, a particular disease, they would make a little slice in their arm. It was called variolation, and they would put it in. This was known for thousands of years, okay? And in fact, Edward Jenner used that technique with the cowpox virus. It was an African slave who brought that technique to the Americas that Washington used to give the cowpox to soldiers because he knew the British were going to put smallpox. So that African slave who brought it here taught that technique and he saved 40,000 soldiers. So the point is exposing mm. people early on helps. But those things were the full-blown disease. They weren't a vaccine, right? created with embryonic tissue here and some mercury here and thrown in, right? These were the full natural things, right? It's like eating dirt. So the point is your body has a mechanism that's built to take a stress like your muscles, like your immune system and get strong. So the issue is how did vaccines come about? Well, um, there was a thing called polio, right? Yep. When polio uh, came out, what's interesting is we got to take a little step back. Starting in the 1900s, there are graphs you'll see on the internet, you can, they're pretty accurate. Uh, around the 1900s, 14 out of 100,000 people would die. 14 out of 100,000 deaths, okay? Mm -hmm. So the graph is like this. And if you see it, by 1950, it had come down to like maybe one or uh, half, one out of 200,000 deaths, okay? Massive decline. No vaccines during that period, 1900 to 1950. Why? It was because of public infrastructure. Vitamin A came out. People started eating better. Child labor stopped. Child labor laws were passed. We had sewage. You know, we got rid of, we had sewers. Clean running water. These were infrastructure improvements, broad infrastructure that the government implemented across America. That's what brought down that massive decline from 14 out of 100,000 deaths to one out of 200,000. You follow me, Hotep? That's yep. where it place. Step back even more. Why did the government do that? The reason the government did that is starting in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were massive protests in this country by the American working class. Women starting in Lowell, Massachusetts. Workers who were oppressed, their kids weren't getting. These people took to the streets in the eight, 1880s, there was a Haymarket riots where American workers were shot in Chicago for protesting, okay? And I think it was 1884, we can look it up. In remembrance of those workers who protested, it was called International Workers' Day, all right? Okay. May Day. May, May Day, yeah. started here. When freaking Reagan comes in, he changes it to Law Day. And everywhere in the world, the working people are remembered except in america where it started here so starting in the 1800s to like 1930s the american working class movement was exploding man there's pictures you'll see in times square which has been removed now most history was blacks and whites protesting for the eight-hour workday for public education all this stuff it was the american working class those things have been removed from history but that's why that decline took place public health was because, not because the government was nicer, Franklin freaking Delano Roosevelt was a nice guy. <laughs> he gave it because of fear there was gonna be a revolution in this country. 
Uh. That's where we got Medicare, the eight-hour workday, WPP, all those gains. That's where those debts came down. So starting in 1950, it was just like, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, there were some debts of polio, right? right? But the most of the gains were because of public infrastructure, better nutrition, child labor, okay? Right. So they make polio this big deal, okay? The guy, Jonas Salker, created polio. When he created the polio vaccine, it's very interesting to remember. He wanted to get it out as soon as possible, but he was against any toxicity testing. Let me repeat that. So there's two ways that you put out a medication, right? It has to be efficacious, which means does it work, right? I don't have a bottle of Advil here, but if you look at Advil, it says it's 400 milligrams. When they put it out, they figured out you had to be 400 or more to actually have an effect. If you gave 100, it didn't have an effect. But if you did 2,000, it's going to be toxic, okay? So there's two axes you need to do to get an intervention out. A, is it efficacious? And B, is it going to be toxic? Right. So Jonas Salk, you know, was, oh, my God, polio is going to kill everyone. We need to get it out. But he wrote a letter to the health commissioner of the time, but I don't want any, let's not waste time with any toxicities. Okay. Which means will the polio vaccine, it cause damage. Okay. Right. All right. Right. Now there's the history doesn't talk about the fact there was an incident where 400,000 people were given the live virus and a bunch of people actually got polio. Okay. In India right now, people with the live virus in the mouth or oral are getting polio. After the polio vaccine, they reclassified the paralysis some people were getting no longer as polio. Okay, so that's the first thing you got to remember. But Jonas Salk was held up in such high esteem and modern medicine, that was their big um, definition of modern medicine. Look, modern medicine cured polio, right? Didn't Jonas Salk do an amazing thing? Okay, based on that, but the issue is Jonas Salk was against toxicity testing. Mm. There's a famous letter he wrote, okay? Mm. There's mm. no reason to test toxicity. As long as the antibodies show up, everything's fine. Mm. Now go to 1963 with measles. Okay. When I was a kid, we got measles. People had measles parties. Okay. Um, according to the CDC in 1963, people would get measles and people, their immune systems, I mean, you would, you know, like people would sneeze on people, whatever, they'd get measles. Right. But in 1963, they found out one out of 100,000 people were getting neural inflammation. Uh, uh, okay. It's an inflammation in the brain. Yeah, neural inflammation. But one out of 100,000 people, okay, who actually got measles naturally. So what is that? That's 0.001%, I think. Okay. Okay. Forget that. But it's 0.001%. Okay. Right. Now, up until then, we'd get measles and, you know, we get the measles and we deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. Based on that, right? that number, someone decided that risk was too high, 0.001%. Therefore, we need to vaccinate the shit out of everyone. All right, hold on, wait, we gotta do, we gotta back up really fast. Okay. Polio becomes a problem in the 50s? That's when they identified polio as a problem. When most of the deaths from that, from childhood deaths, or if you look at the graph, it already gone down because of sewage, sanitation, et cetera. Right. If you look at the graph, it was minuscule effect relative to the overall deaths. You see and what I'm those saying? Deaths, those deaths were attributed just to polio? Uh, what? Which deaths? You're saying the deaths that went down. No, no. That's yeah. just overall. 
Overall, yeah. Right. So if you looked in 1900 and you drew a graph on a y-axis, you, you put 14 would be here. Right. 14 out of 100,000. That was considered really high. Right. By 1950, guess what the number of deaths were? One out of 200,000. 0.5 right. out of 100. So already. So, 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 so health is getting better overall. Because they, 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 infrastructure. Right. Because of infrastructure. And, and because of that, protesting and fighting for that infrastructure. Right. Not because of medical interventions. Right. And the decided, it wasn't doctors who helped that death. It was American working class scaring the shit out of the establishment. Right. And in response to that, they gave us, they got rid of child labor. All those laws right, right. the American working class. So, so, so how does polio become a problem? Like who decides that, oh, polio is a problem? This is a good question. Someone decided. Okay. The CDC said, Okay, we have these people, you know, we need, to, it's like this. You're asking a great question, Hotep. The real issue is this. Edmund Hillary, someone says, oh, I can climb that mountain, so I'm going to go climb it. Look, the reality is with technology, we can consider anything a problem. Okay, you know what? I want to have everyone have, a, you know, it's really bad that, you know, like I think people in China are getting leg attachments, right? They're extent, right? They're adding bone to their body, right? They yeah. break. Well, someone just said, you know what? Short people, that's a problem, okay? <laughs> because we can make tall people, let's go solve that problem, okay? Mm. Okay, so the interesting thing with technology is who is deciding what's a problem and what the risk level is? This is a fundamental question, okay? Okay. When it, okay. Right? This is a very deep question. Who is freaking – so let's say I say today, you know, if you have um, this issue, right – um, you know, having a mole on your left thing over here is a bad thing. We got to get rid of all those moles. Well, you have technology. We can do this and we can do that and we can get rid of it. Okay. Yeah. Now you force everyone to do it. Okay. Wrinkles are bad. We got to get everyone on Botox. Okay. Yeah. The thing is with medicine and with technology, the human mind can freaking solve a lot of things, but who is deciding what should be solved? Right. Okay. Who is making and, and at what cost to everyone else? Right. Right. Okay. So in the case of polio, there's a percentage of people who are getting it. So we decide to do this intervention. And then that intervention is based on a science. Okay, so when you look at the science of vaccines, be it, I'll come back to measles, it's based on a science, What I'm, which is what I wanted to teach, is based on a science that's close to 50 to 100 years old. So what is that science? So the science at that point of the immune system goes like this. Okay. You, you have two boxes, box one and box two, innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, which are connected. Okay. When, so the innate immune system, think about it as your gang of warriors who are unleashed when they see anything. Okay. It's like, imagine you have a bunch of Dobermans around your house. Anyone walks in, they go bite them. They don't care who the hell it is. Okay. That's infantry. Huh? It's infantry. infantry. They just shoot like crazy. They, they just shoot on anything that they shoot. But if they make it through and they come into your house, you have the Navy SEAL who takes out that one person, okay? And you may have a few Navy SEALs who are specialists. One guy can take out a ninja. One guy can take out, you know, a sniper. You see? They're specialists. Right. Okay. So if you use that analogy, the Dobermans or the infantry are what's called the innate immune system. And your adaptive immune system is your Navy SEALs, okay? So... The innate immune system is non-specific. It attacks anything. So if you 
uh, if you're hanging around a bunch of young kids and they're sneezing on you and you're getting all this stuff happening, the innate immune system is your skin, your eyes. It's everything that's open to the external world, your gut, your mouth, your nasal passages. You get what I'm saying? Your ears. Oh, yeah. Anything where that virus or those pathogens make contact with. Okay. So in your eye tears, in your glands, in your gut are all these amazing infantry, macrophages, dendritic cells. I mean, neutrophils that are ready to go attack that pathogen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's called the innate immune system. Right. And, and that attack occurs during the first 72 hours. Okay. From the time you get infected, that's why you get a fever or cold, a runny nose, blah, blah, blah. If it breaks it through that, then it clicks onto your adaptive immune system. So let's say God, let's say someone sneezes on you and they have measles. Okay. Well, your innate immune system will try to knock it off, which is your nose because measles goes up through the respiratory system. And if that doesn't fail, your adaptive immune system kicks in and it says, okay, measles, get the, get the specialist. I'm going to now create an antibody to that virus. Okay. Okay. And it's a single antibody. This is the theory. Okay. So you have your innate and your adaptive, and this has been the theory of the immune system since 1915 till today. And in fact, a little bit upgraded in 1954. Okay. And in this two box model, the measurement of your immune health is measured by one freaking variable. Antibodies. Antibodies. That's it. You see where I'm going with this? Yep. Yep. Right. So that would be like measuring your health by can he lift, can he bench press 225 pounds? Oh, he's a healthy guy. Well, shit, he's on steroids and he's on this and he's, you know what I mean? He's all screwed up, but he, he can do that one lift. Okay. Yeah. You know, people like this, right? They got yeah. the big chest, but that's it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You go to the gym and they just do that. Okay. Yeah. That's what this is like. So that is the theory of the immune system. Okay. Up and still to today. So what they did was they said, okay, what we're going to do is instead of, so when the pathogen comes in, it comes in first through your innate, okay? And then it goes to your adaptive. So what we're going to do, because we're so freaking smart, we're going to inject something right into your adaptive system. Just inject the measles virus or inject the polio virus. So your body will just, we're just going to send the Navy SEALs in right away, okay? Okay. And if, if the antibodies get generated, you're great. So they give you the measles vaccine, one shot. Uh, it didn't work. Most times it's supposed to work. If it doesn't give you two shots, it's called a double dose. Oh, he's got the measles antibodies. He's great. Yeah, hey, you're, you're cool. You're protected. Okay? Okay. That's the concept of vaccination. Short circuit the innate immune system. Go to the adaptive. Measure the antibodies. And you're in beautiful shape. You got it? Got it. Okay. This is the theory of vaccination. Now, a couple of other things they added. Well, sometimes those vaccines, the viruses, the dead or the live virus are putting in, is not doing enough. So they said, shit, we got to add an, we got to have an Uber driver here to transport that vaccine to the right place. That Uber driver was called an adjuvant, like mercury, aluminum, okay? Because he, he, he drives that nice virus, right? You know, they're dead virus oh, yeah. right into the locations, okay? Yeah. Forgetting that that aluminum and that mercury could also cause problems, okay? This is far different than variolation, what the black slave brought from Africa, right? Where you give the whole thing or you expose people, very different, okay? 
but it's based on this old model of the immune system. You got what I'm saying? I'm so that, so my research since 2003 has been understanding the molecular systems, understanding biology. Understand so when I created Cytosol, I took what's called a systems approach. So the, the best example to understand a systems approach is goes back to the, the story of Buddha. Buddha told a very famous story about the king who brings in six blind men to touch an elephant. There's an elephant, okay? And the six blind men come in and the king asks each blind man to touch parts of the elephant to see what they see. The guy who touches a tusk thinks he's touching a spear. The guy who touches the feet thinks he's ran into a big oak tree. The guy touches a, the tail thinks it's a brush, you see? Yeah. So they're, they're all blinded in their view of reality. None of them sees an elephant. They just see little pieces, okay? So this is, a, this, this is how biology works up until 2003. Mm. Um, so you see this big system, you go stick some needle into a mouse, you get some output, you win a Nobel Prize for discovering how two proteins, that you can, okay? You stick another needle here, this happens, oh, okay, great, give him some other Nobel Prize, okay? It's a reductionist model of biology, okay? But in 2003, what happened was something very important happened. People said, um, in 2003, the genome project ended. It started in 1993. And in 2003, when the genome project ended, something extraordinary happened. People went in in 1993, these biologists working like little blind men, saying, oh, we, they knew in 1993 Hotepa worm had around 20,000 genes. But in 1993, they said, okay, we're humans. Look how complex we are. It must be because we have more parts. They forgot about the interconnection. Yeah. So they assumed we had about a half a million genes. Okay. So if you look at this graph, 1993, it goes down. And by 2003, it turns out we only have 20,000 genes, the same number of genes as a worm. Okay? Oh, wow. Okay. We have the same. So biologists were like, what the hell is going on? They knew because they are not systems guys. The reality is if I gave you 20,000 beads, one guy would connect them in all different wild shapes, or you could just connect them linearly. Yeah, it's not the number of parts, it's how they are interconnected, right? Okay, it's the interconnections that make us who we are. Then we have more connections, okay? Mm. That's so that so that gave rise to a field called systems biology. So in 2003, I was running my sixth company called Echo Mail, you know, a company that I created to analyze email it was my second life with email. I did an AI company, we built it to a very large company. Um, I was walking back to MIT and my advisor in 2003 said, Shiva, you've always loved medicine. You've always loved computing. Come back and you can make a great contribution. One of the big challenges is could you mathematically model all the chemical reactions in the human cell? If you can do that, we can eliminate the need for animal testing. Mm. So that became my passion between, so I left my, I was running a company. I had someone else take over, came back between 2003 and seven. And uh, in those four years, I uh, built a new technology called Cyto, which means cell and solve. And it was beyond AI because we were literally created a whole new infrastructure to mathematically model all different diseases. And no one thought this could be done, Hotep. Um, and between 2007 to 12, I, I had to publish in all the big journals to validate this, you know, to prove my chops because this was like a revolutionary thing that I was saying. Right. And in 2012, I created a company called Cytosol. And so, you know, um, 
the innovative guys in pharma. There are some good people in pharmaceutical companies. I'm not talking about the pharma, big pharma. Big pharma yeah. There are people like you and me who have families and shit, right? They care. They know things are failing in pharma. They know the stuff's not working. Uh -huh. Some of them would come to us and say, wow, we should use Cytosol. Why? Because today it takes 15 years to produce a drug. 15 years. How does a drug, they find an individual isolated synthetic compound. They test it in a test tube, kill a bunch of animals. Then they do six years, nine years of animals. It's 15 years. And the drug that comes out has all these side effects. With my technology, you could test it on the computer long before you even waste all these animals and all this time. Mm. Just like how we build an airplane. And airplanes are done on the computer. Right. Cytosol. Okay. So when I started, we went to pharma, but pharma moved really slow. But then we, what I really enjoyed was natural products. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much into health. So we found all these natural product companies who said, wow, because if you look at Whole Foods, all these people are throwing all this junk together. No one even knows it works. So there's snake oil there too, as bad as big pharma in some ways. So our technology helps people figure out what actually works, okay? What doesn't work? We're actually able to understand synergy and combinations holistically. So it's the dream that I had when I was a five-year, six-year-old kid, when I saw my grandmother. So what our technology does, it lets you do alchemy. So this year, for example, we filed nearly 15 patents. We've discovered amazing combinations from natural products, not drugs. Now, I also, you know, pharma companies don't get it yet, but some of them um, will want to do some interesting things with us. We helped a company in Cambridge called Al Nylon, Pfizer. But the people really want to do this as a nutritional companies, right? Because they really want to, and so Cytosol's there. So when it comes to the immune system, I always look at it as a systems problem, okay? Right. So this two box reductionist model, it's like saying the elephant only has a tusk and a tail, okay? <laughs> yeah. But my research has shown that it's at least more than two boxes. There's an in-between box here, which I left the two thumbs, it's called the interferon system. It's a nice, very, it's a missing link between the adaptive and the immune, innate and the adaptive system. The Japanese have done some great work on this. For my PhD thesis, I actually analyzed that, mathematically modeled it, validated it, okay? It's an important piece of the immune system. Mm -hmm. The turns that is when you get hit with a virus, when it comes to your nose, all these beautiful genes actually get upregulated over a thousand genes. It's not just a bunch of infantry people. In addition, the interferon system gets turned on all these interferons and then the adaptive. And in addition to that, the interferon system communicates with your gut bacteria mm. and your gut communicates with your brain. It's called the brain gut axis. Okay, and your lymphatic system. So the system is not just two boxes, it's at least five to six other boxes. And that's what, and I call it the modern theory of the immune system. Okay. It's like basically saying the earth ain't flat. They have a flat model. I'm saying it's round, okay? The yeah. immune system ain't flat. It's actually quite round, okay? Oh yeah. And that roundness means it's got a lot more beauty and texture and interconnections. So if you're taking this very complex system nature created to make us resilient, okay? Nature is infinitely wise. Whether a God created it through natural design or nature, over billions of years, we've been made to be able to withstand. The immune system is the master shield of the body, okay? So um, it's important to understand that this master system is not flat, it's round. And that's what Dr. Shiva Iadri presented at the National Science Foundation, okay? okay? And that's what I was gonna present at Livingston High School to science students by a science advisor. 
Mm. And the superintendent of schools pussied out. <laughs> and I was on the phone with him. I said, do you understand? He said, well, I didn't know you were running for Senate. This is a political. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I just spoke at the National Science Foundation. I said, they don't care. I can have multiple lives. What I can't, what, what, a, what a scientist can't run for senator. I said, independent of that, I said, you are choosing politics over science. Do you understand what you're doing? I said, do you understand 40 years ago, Mel Klein, the superintendent, had each had no spine and not allowed me to go to Newark and work? that I would never have invented email and given the prestige to your high school. That's mm. why you put me in the Livingston Hall of Fame. I said, do you understand what you're doing? I said, you are kowtowing to people because they want to call me names and you are basically pussyfooting out. Right. And the, the, the principal didn't say anything and the science director, and I just spoken to the director of the science department, he didn't even know that the vaccine courts were set up that you could pass on liability. And I want to talk about that. Okay? okay. So, so here you have, I was going to give a science lecture with homework assignments, which I'd done before yeah. to science students, which is supposedly one of the, and offer a public science conference on right. the modern theory of, and in fact, the title of the conference, which was beyond vax and anti-vax. Let's move yeah. beyond the stupid dialectics, you know, beyond pro CO2, anti CO2. And that's what scared the hell out of them because an MIT PhD is supposed to be part of the establishment. An MIT PhD is not supposed to leave his job as a noble service and go, well, he must have some ulterior motive. No, I don't. I actually do fucking care. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there are yeah. people who actually still feel connected to working class roots and have a sense of noble duty. Mm. That doesn't compute to these people because they've been so screwed over by money, money, money. And prestige. All right, so I want to geek out real quick, right? If they introduce the vaccine, the vaccine bypasses the innate system and the interferon system and the microbiome, a lot of subsystems. Right. That would mean that those systems never become resilient. They never strengthen, right? Yes, they never have the opportunity to awaken. Okay. Right. Um, a great Japanese paper came out which looked at kids who had autism. And without autism, they found out in the gut bacteria, there were two bacteria. One was six times higher and one was three times lower. You see, these are communicating subsystems. So when you get a, when you get measles, all these genes get turned on and your interferon. And when your interferon system gets turned on, it protects you against many other viruses. Right. Thousands of other viruses. I mean, do you think <laughs> there's hundreds of thousands of viruses out there? By the way. There's hundreds of thousands of virus within us. It's called the virome, okay? There's potentially 300 trillion virus. It's called the virome in your body right now, oh. okay? We are living in a jungle. Do you think that that our immune system can handle a few viruses? This is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's supposed to be exposed. So when the vaccine enters the body, you know, I want to touch on the, the autism thing, but- What's happening negatively? You know, there's a lot of people saying that uh, there's mercury in there, etc. Yeah, forget the mercury. So, so one is mercury and mercury poison. That itself is. But let's just talk about what's happening. Right. Your system at a certain point in time, your body is very intelligent. Okay. It always wants to get back into what's called homeostasis. Yeah. Right. It's always trying to come back to balance. Right. Harmony. Yeah. 
It's trying to come back to harmony. So what you're doing is you're taking this very complex six box system. You're sticking a vaccine here. So you've just basically perturbed it like a wave. My research shows that when you do that, the other systems will try to balance this. Mm. Okay. Mm. Which means the interferon system may actually turn itself on. Remember the, the normal way was the virus comes this way, turns on the interferon. And now the interferon system may turn itself on because it's saying, wait a minute, there's a vaccine here. I didn't turn myself on. I should be on. It's all confused. And you know what that creates? Autoimmunity, autoimmune disorders. 54% of kids in the United States now have autoimmune disorders. What's that? So what is autoimmunity? It's your body trying to attack itself. Autoimmunity, okay? So what I'm saying is the immune system is a beautifully balanced system. When the immune system can go wacky, the immune system has one particular intelligence. What is a real enemy and what's a fake enemy? Okay. All right. And it yep. builds its intelligence by being exposed to real enemies. So you expose it to real enemies. It says, Oh, that's an enemy. That's an enemy. Oh, that's, that's friendly, friendly fire. Okay. Now you've subverted that and stuck something in over here. The system never had a chance to modulate. So what's happening in my view, forget the, the mercury and all that. When you subvert it that way, you're sticking something into your freaking bloodstream, man. It's, you're, you're not letting it go through the natural process. Mm. So your body is going to, you're, you're trying to artificially simulate this process, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, in fact, Greg Poland, who's the head of the Mayo Clinic, big pro-vaxxer, he's a scientist, fine, he has his view. He's even said vaccines aren't working now. And, uh, and I want to go to that. But the point is, the theory is when you stick that vaccine in, right, your adaptive is being turned on, okay? But in the normal course of events, HOTEP was your innate supposed to be turned on, the IFN supposed to be turned on, your microbiome adjusts, the microbiome communicates to your brain, and then you're adaptive. You see, it's this big choreography. Yeah. You're suddenly going and doing something here. Don't you think the ankle bone's connected to the foot bone? You do something here. Don't you think the foot bone's going to react in a different way? This mm -hmm. is engineering system theory. But MDs, by the way, still learn the tube system model. Most MDs today are like technicians. They're tech support guys. Okay? They don't learn the whole thing. Oh. They're flying an airplane, but at least a pilot knows he doesn't know the functioning of the airplane. But the MD doesn't really know the immune system, yet they're being given all this credit, an MD and a pediatrician. They actually know very little about the immune system. It's guys like me who study the body as a system who know it. Yeah. So what happened is, to your point, it's like all these, these gears are connected and you're tweaking this gear. Don't you think this and this gear are going to try to adjust in some way? to compensate for the introduction that you just did. Yeah. That's what I call reductionism. You're taking a very complex system and you're reducing it to a single variable. Mm. That's called reductionist thinking. Mm. Mm. And that thinking can help you in certain conditions in a wartime condition, okay? Where soldier got blown up, let's stick it. We gotta just get his liver back working, okay? Right. That's your goal. You just want him to survive, but that's not the condition we're in right now. Mm-hmm. So what they've done with vaccines is something quite insidious in terms of the poor communication. So starting in 19, let's go to the measles virus because that's a big thing they keep talking about. Measles, 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 right? So 1963, one out of 100,000 people are getting neuroinflammation, okay? So they said, oh my God, that's too high. We got to reduce that, right? <laughs> they said, we need to give everyone vaccines, okay? 
So therefore, that was their justification, that one out of 100,000. Someone decided, we don't know who, somebody, it's like that Russell Peters thing, you go, somebody, <laughs> you ever seen that? <laughs> but anyway, somebody decided that one out of 100,000 was bad, right? Yeah. So based on that, they said, we're going to have to vaccinate every freaking person in the world, okay? Okay. Now, the way they justified this was a social justice warrior argument. It was a lib white liberal Democrat argument. This is how it goes. Take measles, for example. They said, okay, there are people who are immunocompromised. Who are those people? Let's say someone got a blood transfusion, right? Yeah. Let's say someone uh, has AIDS or someone has chemotherapy, right? They're in the ICU. And right now in the United States, about one out of 2,000 people are what are called immunocompromised. Like if you sneeze at them, they're going to die, okay? Yeah, yeah. Right? You can't expose them to anyone. Uh, you know, who has, like, you don't take a sick child into an ICU, okay? That's about one out of 2,000. If you work out the numbers, that's about 170,000 people in the United States, okay? Okay. So in order to protect those 170,000 people, Hotep, okay, Dr. Hotep, we want you to immunize, they, they came up with a number called herd immunity. We got to immunize a certain amount of the herd. And they initially decided, I think it was like 80, 75%. So we got to immunize, let's say the U.S. population is 300 million. We got to immunize at least 220 million people to protect these 170,000. Okay, so just absorb that for a second, okay? This is, this is a freaking concept, man. Therefore, but, but then they said, well, that's not working. We got to make it 80%. Then it went to 85, 90. Now, it's, now they're saying in order to protect that immunocompromise of 170,000, we have to immunize 95% of the 300 million, the US population. So we got to immunize 280 million people to protect that 170,000. Now it gets even more interesting. Now, the first question you'd say is, okay, so I got to protect the small group over here. What about the people who got the vaccine? What happens if some of them get injured from that? What percentage is that? Now, when it came to measles, going back to that, remember one out of 100,000 people are getting vaccine, I mean, uh, we're getting neuroinflammation. Today, one out of 36 or one out of 88 kids are getting neuroinflammation. Which so it is, got worse. Well, let's, so the analogy I give is, let's say we're living in New Jersey and there's all the bridges in New Jersey and we find out when a hurricane comes, one out of 100 of those bridges fall down. Okay, which so what's the risk? One percent, right? Got it. So yep. that's the risk. So then some politician convinces you and me and all the citizens we got to spend a hundred billion dollars. And I have a friend of mine who's got this bridge reinforcement technology, and he pushes that through Congress, the state legislator, and we say, okay, so now we start putting this new technology to reinforce all the bridges to protect them because someone decided one percent was bad. Right. So we do that, and guess what happens ten years later? Two out of a hundred bridges are falling apart when I heard that's two percent. I'm just giving an analogy, okay? Yeah, yeah. So they shit, it's gone up by two times. Could it be that reinforcement technology? We probably would, and we would call engineering meetings, scientists would come and we'd say something's wrong here, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, compared to vaccines, so you had one out of one hundred thousand. Let's yeah. say let's even give it to them now, it's one out of two thousand, okay? Yeah. The number of people that are getting neuroinflammation, which is, by the way, one of the biomarkers of autism, is one out of 88 
even if you give it to them, that's 1.136%, which means it's gone up by 10,000 times. Wow. So if you saw that and a parent comes to you and complains, let's say a parent says, hey, that bridge fell down. You say, holy shit, that bridge fell down. Let's do an engineering meeting. Here, mother's complaining. You say, screw off, you're an idiot. So in medicine, the customer is always wrong. In engineering, the customer is always right. I mean, you run an entrepreneur company, I do. If a customer calls me with one freaking problem, I don't say, you're an idiot, shut up and hang up, right? I don't do that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, what browser are you using? What version? Da, 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 da. I try mm -hmm. to figure it out. Yeah, you troubleshoot. But I may find out something's wrong in my software. But when a mother reports, hey, my kid just went in, he was absolutely fine. He got these MMR, and now he's like, I can't even talk to him. He's completely gone. Ah, you're an idiot. That's not the vaccine. That's what's been going on, Hotep. Okay? So you have, in medicine, the customer is always wrong. In engineering, we're taught the customer is always right. Right there, there's a problem. And you have pediatricians and MDs who are basically like the Indian guy, hey, what is going on? They're basically tech support now. They're yeah. bad tech support. That's what they've become because not of, of their own fault, but because of the medical training, they're taught the two box model. And because many of them, many medical doctors have lost all their rights. They get, when they've joined these medical boards, they basically, they're also slaves, okay? I don't blame them. They're part of this very insidious system. Yeah, they're full, they're full too. They're full by this whole indoctrination uh, too. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're by the short hairs of these people. So right. that's what's going on. So now you have a situation where the vaccine model said, okay, we got to protect these 170,000. So for every vaccine, they came up with a percentage of all of us that need to be vaccinated, okay? So for measles, it's 95%. All right, now, and knowing that there is, because they know there was injuries in 1986, let's say, God forbid, someone you know got injured or died. In 1986, they passed a law that you as a citizen couldn't sue Merck. You couldn't sue the big pharma. Guess who you sued? You sued the US government in vaccine court. They set up a vaccine court. And they, and they set the liability, the maximum liability of that in case of death was a quarter of a million dollars. That's it. So what I'm trying to say is that me and $4 billion have been, $4.85 billion have been paid out to date around, okay? Oh. So that, that means they know a certain percentage of people are going to get injured, right? Yeah. They've done the analysis and they said, okay, we'll throw them some bones. And the politicians created these laws. That means there is a risk. Okay. And what they're saying is we know there's a risk, but it even gets more interesting. When you create a drug like Advil or you create Lipitor, it has to go through this very strict process because it's a drug. When you create a biomedical device like a stethoscope, okay, it has to also go through a very deep process right? through FDA approval. Do you know vaccines don't need to go through that same process? No quality assurance. Yep, no qual no QA. They called it a biologic. So the 30 vaccines, this is going to blow your mind, the 30 vaccines that children are supposed to take on the standardized schedule, there's no double-blind saline testing done at all, Hotep. And the one that they did it for Gardasil was a completely fraudulent test. Let me explain. Okay. In science, in the scientific method, what is supposed to happen is here's a vaccine and you're supposed to have the other thing, which is just supposed to be a saltwater solution, okay? And what you're supposed to do is a double blind study. What's a double blind study? 
let's say you're going to test the vaccine on a thousand people. Okay. Right. You take a thousand people, you split them into 500 and 500. Okay. Okay. And none of those people know which group they're in. Right. They're coded. Then this group gets the vaccine. This group gets a saline solution. That's why I call it a saline placebo, salt water. Right. Me, the researcher giving it, I don't even know who got it. That's why it's double blind. Single blind meaning the people don't know who got it. Right. And the administer doesn't know. And administer. Double blind saline. That's called the gold standard. Of these 30 vaccines, okay, none of them, none of them have, none of them have gone through double blind saline placebo control studies. The Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine, they did a bogus double blind. Let me tell you what they did. They took about 10,000 people, they gave them the HPV vaccine. Remember the vaccines have an additional thing called the aluminum or the adjuvant? Yeah. Well, the second group, around 9,500 people or so, guess what they gave them? Not the saline, just the aluminum. Right. And then they gave a small group the saline. And then they said, oh, this was a, and 2.3% and of the HPV people actually got autoimmune disorders. 2.3% of the aluminum people got autoimmune and no one in the saline, but it was, but they said, oh, see, it's about the same 2.3, 2.3. It was a completely fraudulent test. Wow. And not one scientist with a biological engineering background with an MIT background will say anything about this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because they owe pharma. And you're talking to a guy that I don't have to be doing this technically. Um, technically, uh, I could just sit quiet. Right. But I can't because I have a loyalty to the working people in New Jersey and where I grew up, Hotep. So the bottom line is this, man. The entire process is not based on real science. And what they're trying to do now is impose a fake science on people. This idiot, Sweeney, and I have to call him an idiot. I was being very kind to him. I invited him, me to a seminar. I was being nice. I, 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 you know, and you have a bunch of the liberals going around, oh, don't piss them off. They're going to vote. No, they're not going to vote for you. They're already bought and sold. The <laughs> only thing that's going to do it is a massive movement. And, and the reason they held it was because 5,000, 6,000 people showed up. Mm. The vaccine issue is not about vaccines. It's about a direct attack on freedom of science. It's a direct attack on freedom of choice. It's an attack on our health. And it's about people like Bill Gates trying to own our lifeblood. MIT just did this thing where they're gonna say, when you get vaccinated, they'll put this little dye. It's basically a chip equivalent. And you can measure with a remote Wi-Fi who's been vaccinated, who hasn't been vaccinated. This just came out. You can look it up. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Hold that thought right there. Let me do some super chats. I want to come okay. back and talk about the efficacy of vaccines. Um, we got Mr. Behavior, $5 super chat. He says, S is County Family. What's up? Thanks for dropping knowledge on this scientific method being replaced by consensus. Uh, incredibly poignant. Oh, yeah. Amby, uh, I can't say your last name. Sorry, bro. I got to catch up on my African. $20 super chat. Thank you. Bruce Springsteen uh, and his Misery songs. Just listen to it. Laced with catchy beats. Chad Lemoyne, uh, how long to your Twitter at changes the Hotep Shiva? <laughs> Mary O'Donnell, Ma of the Year. 
uh, Dr. Shiva, I have uh, hereditary Anglo edema type one. I don't think there's anything natural for that, right? Because it's genetic. I'm missing a, a protein in my blood. Now, hold on before you answer that. Dr. Shiva is on point. Christina Siegfried, Mary O'Donnell again. Uh, Dr. Shiva, have you ever seen the documentaries by Dr. Gary Null called Vaccine Nation in 2008 and Silent Epidemic in 2013? Good documentaries regarding vaccines. Hold on again. Mr. Behavior again. Uh, we should let natural selection weed out weaker immune systems to make the uh, species stronger overall. Uh, Mrs. Behavior again. Thank you. Uh, the uh, era themes of biology. I don't know what that is. Uh, Diana Elmore, $20 super chat. Thank you. Uh, Matt, thank you. Uh, that Russell Peters impression had me rolling. Uh, yeah. So Dr. Sheen, did you want to answer Mary real fast? Yeah. Which, which one do you mean to go after first? Uh, the first one where she says she had. Yeah. I think she's talking about type one diabetes. Look, the, let me tell you what's going on. Uh, biology. We're just we're just, uh, we're just scratch the surface of biology. There's a guy called Gerald Fink. You can look him up. He just gave the MIT Killian lecture at MIT. He's a professor at MIT. So remember I told you that we have the genome, the human genome. When the genome project finished, uh, they said, you know, we have the same number of genes as a worm, 22,000 genes. Now, what is a gene per the old definition? A gene is something which creates proteins. Okay. A gene codes for a protein, uh, and then it's uh, translated and then transcribed. Okay. Protein. So, however, something fascinating just took place. Um, so genes, typically a gene codes for what's called messenger RNA and that messenger RNA leaves the nu nucleus and codes for a protein. Okay. This is the Watson Crick model genes, messenger RNA protein, genes, messenger RNA protein, okay? okay? Insulin, there's a gene for insulin, which codes um, for messenger RNA, which codes for that protein insulin, got it? So it says dit, 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 So we said we have about 20,000 of those genes. Well, that's only 2% of the genome. They didn't know what the other 98% was. It was called dark matter. Sound familiar, like space. Mm. In the last five, 10 years, five years, they have found something fascinating. The other 98% of that DNA is also genes, but there's a new definition of a gene. That definition of a gene is genes that code for all different other kinds of RNAs. Okay. And those RNAs are not protein coding RNAs. Mm. So the new definition of a gene is a gene is something that codes for an RNA. Some of those RNAs make proteins, those 22,000, but there's many genes we have. And those other genes code for RNAs, guess what they do? They turn off and turn on genes. Oh. So when someone says, oh, you have type one diabetes and you're screwed. Well, that may not be true because those other RNAs can get turned on, which can upregulate and turn and turn off genes. This is why food is important. We don't know enough. My point is it's like going into the, we imagine saying, oh, I only think there's five planets in the freaking universe. Bullshit. <laughs> now we're finding out there's like all this other stuff that are planets, but we didn't call them planets. Okay. Yeah. So that's why the, this, this whole, so now you're sticking in this thing and you're telling me you got antibodies, you're in great shape. It's bullshit. Now this is what's actually happened. 
after two doses of the measles vaccine, guess what they're finding? Whoa. 10 to 20% of people aren't even generating antibodies. So their vaccines aren't even quote unquote working. Oh. So now the Mayo Institute, Greg Poland, who's the editor in chief of vaccines, which is the magazine on vaccines, is saying we need to build better vaccines. Well, you know what, Greg? You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. The bottom line is you don't understand the immune system, okay? Mm. And what happens in academia is after 1970, you don't have to be that smart to get a big position at Harvard or MIT. You just have to know how to suck ass, okay? And the few smart guys, you know, get sidestepped. And what happened in 1970 was a Mansfield Amendment was passed. The Mansfield Amendment basically put lots before the Mansfield Amendment, basic research, the military budget was this big, Hotep, okay? And a little piece of the military budget of that massive budget was funding basic science research. And no one cared, but it, that little piece was a ton of money. And the military, such as they were funding some guy at Bell Labs, some guy sitting at Princeton, and he would do wild research, okay? But no one cared. But after, during the Vietnam War, they passed the Mansfield Amendment, which said the military will no longer fund basic sciences research unless, guess what? It's for weaponry. So that little piece of money went over to a very political organization called the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. So now science was no longer done for purity, by and large. It was done purely for political reasons. It, was it, was, it could be controlled by politicians. This is some, so after 1970, prior to 1970, people went into academia, they, they could be radical, okay? After 1970, all the suck asses primarily survived in academia. I hate to say it, but I know these guys, they're not that bright, but they know how to suck ass really good. And I have to be that demeaning to them. Sorry to use those words, because we need to start recognizing these people have gotten way too much prestige and they are not who you think they are. Mm. Mm. Okay, unfortunate. Not to say they're not some good guys there, yeah. but the majority of them, they get rid of the guys and academia is different than science. Academia is you're a salesperson, okay? You know how to bring in the grant money. You know how to bring in the grant money. You know how to bring in the grant money. And it's basically become the oldest profession in the world now. That is what has happened, mm. okay? The money scheme. It's a money scheme. That's why a guy like Jonathan Gruber can say, people are stupid and I'll push Obamacare through and he still has a job at MIT. We will know that there's justice when we start seeing academics thrown in jail for the bullshit that they're doing. They throw Wall Street guys in jail. These guys are making up shit and they're not talking about the truth. And John Kennedy gave a very famous speech in 1963 to the National Academy of Sciences. And he said, you know, the problems of the world have gotten so complicated that we rely on you guys, scientists, to help us right? Tease out those problems. But the problem is, I mean, but he goes, but the conundrum in a democracy is we assume that you guys are disinterested third parties. Mm. I repeat that. Yeah. So he's 2,500 scientists saying, you know what? I can't understand how the climate system works. I can't understand the immune system. I can't understand, but I'm going to ask you to tell me a politician, but I'm assuming you don't have a horse in the game. But that's not what's happened. All of these guys have freaking horses in the game. And that is what we're fighting about right now. Mm. It's a fact that science has been subverted. This is why 
a superintendent of schools, an MIT trained scientist who won every freaking award, a Fulbright scholar, Livingston Hall of Fame, you know, won the Eloranta felt, and I, you go down my resume, comes back to offer a scientific seminar where he sees it's important, a bunch of suck ass white liberal Democrats who support Pete Buttigieg, right? Mm -hmm. Are able to subvert that and force him not to have a scientist come speak to in a science class. Yeah. Think about what's happening. And this is in the most elite high school. So we need to raise freaking hell. Yeah, yeah. Because this is about, the, because my, you know, I'm running for US Senate, right? My campaign is not any different than, it's truth, freedom, and health. What does that mean? You need to have freedom. You need to be able to have open discourse. You need to be able to have open debate. You need to be able to have all different opinions, educational forums, because from freedom is how we are able to do the scientific method, how we're able to do systems thinking to discover truth. And from truth, we can identify the real problems and we innovate as an innovator, real solutions. And that's how we get health. Now, when you're healthy, you can fight. You can be a warrior for freedom. Mm -hmm. So what we're, doing, we're chopping off the balls of people to fight because we're injuring them. We're giving them GMO foods. We're polluting the atmosphere. This guy, Sweeney, who's a state Senate president in his own town, Hotep, of West Deptford, the water is poison. It's toxic. It's, it, there's an article that came out in May. So what we're talking about is freedom is being subverted. You take an Indian guy, call him a white supremacist, who's an MIT PhD, yeah. right? Yeah. Who was a nominee for the US National Medal of Technology and Innovation, who won a Fulbright scholarship, right? Yeah. Who got a 4.8 out of 5.0 at MIT, who, who wrote probably one of the most extraordinary, the you know, you go down the list. Yeah. You, you, and then you don't allow him to give a science talk and you allow a thug, a, a, a politician, to say that the science is fine, that there is no science. So you have a thug politician who's allowed to have that kind of fucking power. To speak and on you have science. a scientist who is thugged out by a bunch of people. Now, if people aren't pissed off with this, then this country and your children, if you're listening, one out of five kids in the United States has a mental illness right now, a mental problem. 54% of kids have autoimmune disorders. What kind of gene pool are we creating? Mm. And then meanwhile, you know, China is putting 5G down. God knows what that's gonna do better or worse, but they're leapfrogging us. They're doing experiments on all sorts of stuff, okay? They, don't, they value in many ways animal life very li little, right? And people here are living in a freaking cocoon. I tweeted out, look what's going on in California, man. That's like, mm. watch, I mean, I saw the slums. That's like when I used to walk in 1968 in Bombay. Yeah, yeah. People that are fucking wake up and get really angry. Yeah, yeah. And, and anyone who tells people not to get angry, watch out for them. So, Agreed. so, we, so live in, we live in very, very unfortunate times where science and truth are being subverted. That's what's going on. Can you, can you tell me what, well, what can you tell me about? Oh, I don't support 5G. Someone said, I'm not into, what I'm saying is that, that the Chinese are going to deploy that. Right. Okay. And 
it's like they are it's like they're going to deploy airplanes while we're running around in cars now the airplanes may cause problems but they're going to use that it's like aliens coming and have laser weapons and meanwhile we have like you know it's like when the <laughs> when the white man came here and they had guns and the native americans had bows and arrows 5g is going to be the equivalent of that okay yeah. gun i'm not saying 5g is good but what i'm trying to say is the chinese are about to release unleash the internet of things they'll be they have 200 million cameras now over china they watch every little thing that's going on all of our cameras that we buy i mean i went christmas shopping every freaking thing is from china what mm. it, so people need to understand the and bill gates and by the way china owns amc theaters okay <laughs> the biggest Warlord in China owns all the AMC theaters, okay? Wow. And Bill Gates is trying to own everything, and he's the one pushing vaccines, pushing Monsanto, all of this. Yeah, Bill Gates is in Africa pushing the vaccines down there. Yep. I feel like he's trying to kill black people. He's a neo-missionary. You know how the old days they carried the Bible and the sword? Yeah. He's a new version of that. But this time he's bringing medicine. Well, he's bringing... Look, he doesn't give a damn about Africa. What he wants to do is clean it up. It's the next frontier for him and the Chinese. It's like the Wild West. They don't care about getting rid of malaria for black people. They want to get more malaria for themselves because they want to take over all the land. That's what's going on. Look, Africa. I have a friend of mine who has a billionaire guy who flies in with armed people. He's buying up all the land and they have foundations, NGOs, okay? That's what's really going on. And Africa. when America becomes just a shithole, Okay, they'll have their new beautiful organic farms in Africa. Okay, Africa's the new America, right? Africa or will, will be the yeah, new America. I mean, look at the resources that are there, it's pristine land still. You know, it's it's got all the minerals and I mean, richness of herbs and I mean, everything, right? Yeah. So, they're going there as neo missionaries to take over that world. And they've destroyed the African crop structure with GMOs. Africa had so many amazing biodiversity of grains. Now we ship them corn and all this stuff, right? The, the US imperial global policy was to control the soil of countries. I think Kissinger, someone said, if you want to control a country, control oil. But if you want to control a people, control their soil. Mm. Mm. Okay? Yeah. So, it's about, so that's why the Livingston thing is problematic for me, mm -hmm. but we will be in Livingston on January 6th. I will definitely be there. Can um, you this is no longer about Livingston High School and a, a spineless superintendent. Right. This is about something deeper, is that the people of New Jersey are under attack by the fact science is being denied, and you have a thug, Sweeney, talking about science. <laughs> or, by the way, there's two senators down there, man. A, uh, a guy called Vin Gopal, an Indian guy, and another guy called Lagan, two Democrats, who did not stand with Sweeney. They're being arm-twisted right now as we speak, okay? Uh. Vin Gopal and Lagan are being arm-twisted to flip, uh. okay? And Lagan's a young kid whose parents are both Indian doctors. So if they're listening, you should give me a call because, and by the way, the mother comes from the village that my mother came from. Mm. Oh, wow. For anyone listening here, Vin Gopal's mother, Indu Gopal, should give me a call because I would love to educate them on the immune system.
And Vin Gopal says that he listens to his mama and papa on this decision. Yeah, yeah. So chat, y'all got some work to y'all got some homework to do. You got a mission. Make that happen because this is my state we're talking about here. I want to geek out still. Sure. What can, what can you tell me about uh the autism and how it relates to the vaccines? Okay, so what is autism? Okay. Um, autism is a range of different symptoms that shows up. Um, Hotep, you know, it, it goes to extreme cases where people are, you know, highly dysfunctional, right? Can't speak, can't talk to variations where people don't look at you straight, right? It's a whole spectrum. Okay. Um, there is a gene that they've identified, which gets upregulated. I think it's HMBR1. I forget, forget what it is. But one of the characteristics of autism is neuroinflammation. Okay. Okay. So what is neuroinflammation? That means you have inflammation in the, in the brain. Neuroinflammation is related is one subsystem. For example, my company Cytosol, we just did some fundamental research where, you, where we've mapped out all of the Alzheimer's pathways. We've mapped out all of the ALS pathways. I just published a paper a couple of years ago in Nature Neuroscience, by the way, which is the number one highest impact journal in the world. Okay. okay. To publish in there is a big deal. And we've mapped out all the neurovascular diseases. Okay. But inflammation of the brain is causes many different diseases. But guess what? The brain is connected to what? Your gut. gut yeah. Any gastro, my uncle was a gastroenterologist. He said, your gut is your second brain. Right, Some people right. consider it the first brain. Okay. It has more neurons in some ways than the brain. Mm. And there's the vagus nerve connects between your gut and your brain. So, you know, people now know conclusively there's a gut brain axis. So if you eat certain foods, it affects your mood. If your gut is in not good shape, it affects your brain. There's literally, they communicate. It's the gut and the brain are like brother and sister or whatever, like two family members, I mean, even closer than that. Okay. They're communicating. So <laughs> that means as above, so below, as below, so above, right? So what happens right. to your gut affects your brain. So if you're sticking in a vaccine, remember the five models, well, that vaccine now perturbs all the other subsystems. Your gut gets perturbed. Well, that affects your brain. Mm. That mechanistic pathways is what I do for a living, mapping that out with all the different things I do. I've been doing that for 20 years. You know, I don't have time to go through it, but to geek out, it's a big, if you look at a motherboard on a computer, you have the CPU here, you have some memory here, you have the graphics processor, all these things are connected, okay? Yeah. So if your CPU slows down, right, it's going to affect your other processors, right? Right. So these things are connected. So the neuroinflammation is one of the important subsystems of autism, all right? Well, how does neuroinflammation happen? Well, that means your body is under inflammation. Well, how could that occur? That means your body is undergoing some type of thing where it's, why do you undergo inflammation? Why do you get inflammation? You know, I hit my hand with a hammer. You go under inflammation because all the white blood cells rush to protect your body. Inflammation is good in that case, right? But sometimes you get autoimmune where your body is always inflamed, low-grade inflammation. Why? Your body thinks it's always under some attack, Hotep, okay? Mm -hmm. So my theory is when you give these vaccines, it perturbs. Now, it doesn't occur to everyone. Right. Right? Some people can smoke a shitload of weed, okay? And it doesn't do, do that to them. But you know what? The modern THC affects your CB1 receptor for, it's shown, right? So uh -oh. it depends on your body chemistry. 
That's why starting in 2003, when we figured out we're not our genes, we said, shit, we got to move to personalized medicine. One size doesn't fit all. The food that Hotep needs to eat and the medicines are very different than what I need. It's the right medicine for the right person at the right time. This is, in fact, even where Western medicine is recognizing. When I said I get invited all over the world to talk about this because I'm an expert in the field of precision and personalized medicine. So that's why when you're saying every kid is supposed to get these vaccines, it's freaking crazy. And you don't even know how these things are combining. Okay? So one size doesn't fit all. It's anti-science. You have a multi... You have, the earth is round, right? The immune system is round. It's not flat. That's a second message here. And you're telling me you're going to go inject this thing and everything's fine. And the science is decided by a guy who knows nothing about science. <laughs> and I'm one of the leading experts here. And keep the darkie out of Livingston to oh talk about God. it. Because do they don't want dark matter, you know? So to <laughs> keep it out, I mean, what I mean, dark matter, meaning like the dark matter that we all are. Basically, only a few people can speak in Livingston, New Jersey now, you know? Yeah. So what so, do you say when somebody says, oh, you know, um, they say, oh, vaccinate your kid, you know, because I don't want to come to school and affect their mind. And in my head, I'm thinking if your child's vaccinated, you should be safe, right? <laughs> you shouldn't worry if my kid is vaccinated or not because you vaccinated yours. So this is like, so if you believe vaccines work, Right. What do you care? Look, a friend of mine is a gastroenterologist uh, uh, in Texas. Okay. Gastroenterologist, his two, I think, sister-in-law are pediatricians. He chose not to vaccinate his kid. Why? Because I think his family went through, I think they had a couple of miscarriages. Um, his, ki- his kid was cesarean. By the way, when you come through the mother's birth canal, you get all those beautiful microbes and you get stronger. Mm. Cesarean, you're immunocompromised right from that point. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, when you come through the birth, the baby actually immune system is formed when it comes through the birth canal, all the mother's mucous membranes like in the vaginal secretions, all of that is what helps the, the baby, okay? Mm-hmm. So he, they had cesarean, so he chose, I'm not gonna vaccinate my kid. In fact, at one day old, listen to this carefully, a kid's gotta get the hepatitis 1B vaccine. Hepatitis 1B is given to IV drug users and people, you know, people who are you know, prostitutes. Why are you giving that to a one day old kid? So when he chose not to give that vaccine, his both sister-in-laws were upset with him. And he said, look, I made that choice. I've looked for my child. I chose not to do that. Yeah. So the issue here is a fundamental issue. Should medicine be centralized or decentralized? Is the state going to tell you what to do? Or does health emerge from me having a relationship with my doctor, the parent, the mother, you're telling the mother doesn't know better that some guy, Sweeney, some politician is going to tell the mother what to do. This is so primal, man, that's yeah. at the level of freedom. Yeah. It's so anti-science, it's anti-human, it's anti-freedom. So what happens at the hospital, right? You're at the hospital and they're like, hey, we're about to give your child this needle, you know, is there pushback from the doctors? What happens if yeah, you yeah. push back from the doctors? I mean, you have, this is where the fight is going on. I mean, we have a site, Shiva Believes Mothers, right? There's, you know, people are fighting this, these mothers. What's amazing is I have so much respect for these working mothers 
because they're not like students protesting, you know, some issue. These are actual working people. They're giving up their jobs and coming to protest. Mm -hmm. This is not just some fad movement, you know, nothing against student movements, but when working people, that shows serious commitment. So it's a very different kind of movement. Now, from a geek standpoint, right? The most important takeaway from this is you have a very complex system. We're just finding out 98% of the genome. We don't even know how it works until now we have RNA coding genes okay. only and they're not pro. So, I mean, biology is like wild, man. Yeah. And to think that someone can stick something in and everything is fine and you're not gonna listen to the customer and you have an idiot like Bill Gates going around convincing people that he that he's going he has you know he, i think he had a half a million shares in monsanto that he's going to go vaccinate all of africa and that's going to be public policy is quite extraordinary it basically is a choice between freedom and slavery this is no different than what lincoln talked about or kennedy talked about in 1960 it's really a choice man it's are we going to go to the dark ages or the golden age are we going to fight or are we going to pussyfoot out yeah it's, it's really, the vaccine issue is not a vaccine issue. It's about freedom versus slavery. That's what this is about. And, you know, when I came out, you know, there have been other, you know, in, in these movements, as I've talked about, Hotep, one of the important things to understand is there's the establishment and there are people who come from bottom up. In the Russian revolution, a lot of people came from bottom up, independent of any freaking leaders. And then, you know what the establishment did? They created the legislature, the Duma. They told the Russian people to come in here and fight among themselves. In India, people were rising up, wanted to have a good, bloody revolution, which would have been good in India. I'm sorry. Okay? Cleaned up. Okay? Yeah. Every good country has always had a good revolution. India didn't do that. They brought in this guy, Gandhi, who was a racist in Africa. Okay? He didn't do, frankly, anything. He was used by the establishment to talk some good stuff, put on a white robe, act as though he was some great philosopher. But he created the Indian National Congress with the British. And it was the legislature, get people off the streets and into the hallways, off the streets, into the hallways, have them negotiate with these suck asses. This is the technique. The civil rights movement, there were people's names we don't even remember. They brought in MLK. He was, you know, he was a good black bougie, right? Yeah. He was acceptable. Malcolm yeah. wasn't. And then the Kennedys used him, gave him the nice, be I mean, beautiful speech. They always write good art, you know, Springsteen, all these guys. Sounds great. It's a way to manipulate us. Yeah. And they threw affirmative action. Great. But nothing ever got done. The situation of black people in this country is worse than it was before civil rights. Let's be honest. Right. Okay. But when movements take off, it's when people say F off to these legislators and go direct with boldness. Susan B. Anthony went to the Democratic Congress, asked for the women's, asked for universal suffrage for all people. They laughed at her. She took to the streets. The anti-war movement in this country was watching, you know, listening to these not so obvious establishment types, you know, the liberals. But in 1968, when Lyndon B. Johnson sent out the cops to beat the shit out of students outside the Democratic Convention, people said, forget this. The left wing of the Democratic, they broke and they took to the streets and that's when the Vietnam War ended. Mm -hmm. When we broke with the not so obvious establishment in the vaccine movement, it's been controlled by the Kennedys, the big trees, these guys who are Botox people think they're going to make money off this, man. Mm -hmm. So they act like a good game, but they don't want guys like me or everyday people coming out. 
They want to control the movement. Like as though only, I repeat this, that only the Kennedys can choose who the leaders are. Yeah. So what I'm saying is the vaccine movement is an amazing opportunity for people to wake the fuck up. That's what it is. Because with New Jersey, which is a center of pharma, you know, a lot of science institutions, it's going to be major. Even here in Massachusetts, you know, I gave a speech at the hearing, right? The guy called me a fucking prick. It's quite amazing. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's your argument. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, I think, uh, Hotep, I think New Jersey, I'll be there on January 6th. I'll be in Livingston. Uh, mark my words. And uh, everyone should show up, you know, and we need to raise hell. January 6th. January 6th, 7 p.m. You know, I'll be there early. All right. You should come out yeah, there, we're man. Gonna, we're going to connect. And I'm going to get that information from you. I'm going to be in the building for that. You best yeah. believe I'm going to be there. Yeah, um, because what New Jersey Livingston High School symbolizes is where, you know, science is supposed to be taught to science kids. And it was a place where we invited all the legislators to come learn science. I'm not being paid like Elizabeth Warren, $350,000. Okay. I'm yeah. doing it on my own nickel. Okay. I was going to come down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not getting paid for this. Let me I'm hop in these. Super this. Let me, let me. But my, you know, I made, you know, in, in 1975, Hotep, I'd been in the United States for five years. I went back to India. I was 12 years old. And that's when I realized how different this country was than India. And I realized my connection with the working people in Patterson and, and Clifton and all those people. When I went back to India, I said, oh, my God, because I, I didn't know the difference. Here was my aunt living in a little hut, four foot by eight foot. My grandparents who had nothing. And I, and I was leaving the train station. And here are my grandparents who came who have nothing. We're just crying and I realized, shit, I would be a parasite if I didn't do anything. I was a 12 year old boy then. And that day I made a decision as that train was leaving that I would, if I didn't do something for those people and the working people in New Jersey, that I would be a parasite. And that decision is what has guided my life from that point on to today. Yeah, yeah. And it is a solemn promise that I'd made. So nothing is gonna take me away from that. Yeah. And so I happen to have been very fortunate to learn from the enemy. I know how they operate. You know, I've had an amazing life where I got a chance to be among everyday people in Newark, you know? So I've had the experiences, but I'm not gonna let these people get away. Oh, hell no. None of us should, man. Hell no. I've been, I've been, I've been. Hearing in Boston, okay, 600 people. I gave my talk. I said, the science ain't settled. I'm one of the leading guys. They asked questions to everyone. They, they said, okay, that's it. They shut me down. People went crazy. You'll see people got so angry. And, the, and, the, and Mahoney, this is in Massachusetts, called me a fucking prick. If you look around, there were 600 people in there, 599 white people, and only one nigga, me. Okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what the word I'm going to use. Okay? There were no black people there, man. There was no people like us. Damn. These are the people that are getting vaccinated everywhere. In India, people are getting vaccinated. In Africa and yeah. the black communities. And the black sellout preachers, okay, who are the arm of the Democratic Party, 
are destroying their people because these vaccines, I just saw a study, affect African-Americans worse than white folks. Oh my God. So let me ask you this, right? Yeah. We're talking non-establishment now, just the everyday hoi polloi people, right? Who do you think is more receptive to your anti-vax message? Conservatives or liberals? It's a great question. You know, <laughs> in Massachusetts, what we've noticed here and we're noticing is that this issue is breaking. First of all, the conservatives get it. OK, well, let me be specific. Many Trumpers get it. Okay? OK, right. Many Trumpers get it. Why do they get it? Because Trump was a disruptor. Right. I don't care what people I don't know. Donald Trump never met him. But you know what? I never voted in my life. I voted for him because he was willing to attack both parties. He was a necessary disruption, as yeah. we say in systems theory. Okay? Yeah. Number one. The other thing was the tr people who voted for Trump, they had to put themselves out like to be pariahs. Oh, well, yeah, I voted for Trump. You know, they had to get over that. It's like being gay or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they had to go through that journey. Okay? They had to stand up for something they believed in because ultimately, People in this country were tired of the two elites on the East Coast and West Coast telling them that transgender rights were the most important thing or gay rights. Look, I have nothing against, but that's like two freaking percent of the population. Forget about the white working class and inner city black and white folks whose health care was getting cut. They have no freaking jobs. No one was addressing that. Yeah. Right. You're the East Coast and West Coast elites talking about issues that frankly don't affect a lot of people. Right. Okay. And making them big issues. Right. And so th those people get it. Now, the white liberal elites, I've written them off, okay? Right. Forget them, okay? There are the working class mothers, whether they're a D or an I, they're like saying, holy shit, my party's screwing me over, okay? Okay. And they're realizing something doesn't smell right. Independents who may have been left leaning on some issues are recognizing this issue doesn't smell. Okay because it's fundamentally about an attack on freedom. What's really, however, contradictory is a lot of these women who are pro-choice are pro-vax. Think about that. They're like, okay, you can't control my body, but you right. know what, you can stick as many needles as you want state into my child. That's a complete contradiction. Right. So what you're seeing is, a her they talk about herd immunity, what we're actually witnessing is a separating of the wheat from the chaff, those people who use their mind and the this issue and the people who are just following. And the reason this has occurred is the anti quote unquote anti-vax movement has done a shitty job. Yes. Educating people. Yes. Okay. They've relied on Bobby Kennedy. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> they relied on a few organizations, some of them who've been infiltrated by the big pharma guys. Who've oh. been telling people to simmer down, okay? So that's why you cannot trust this to people that are not willing to take a revolutionary position on this. A revolutionary position is you believe in people, you believe in building bottoms up. Anyone who says, well, uh, you can't say that now, we got to get that legislator over, right? Yeah. That legislator is only going to come over if he sees, oh my God, there's going to be shitloads of people out on the street. Yeah. You know, so, I've you know, from my personal experience, you know, I have a pretty large following on Twitter, so my reach is big because of that. And when I talk about vax, you know, I find that well, Trumpers is actually 
different types of Trumpers, right? Yeah, it's different types. Of <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but, you start thinking of them. Yeah, it's interesting. You, know, you, you could really like dive into that demographic. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I test, I do a lot of experiments on Twitter to kind of just like understand these demographics. Yeah. But I find that overall, the vast majority of conservatives are actually pro-vax and actually do have a lot of pushback when I say, yo, you know, like, I don't know if this vaccine thing is a good idea. Yeah. You know, which, you know, had me thinking like, well, you know, because my following is mostly uh, conservative, I don't know what the liberals are thinking. So I'm like, well, are the liberals hip? You know what I mean? Are the liberals pro-vax? And what, you know, what's going on with that? And that's why I asked you that well, question. What I'm saying, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great discussion. What I've noticed is, you know, when I ran last year as a Republican, the Republicans got so afraid of me because I was the outsider. They ran an idiot to run against me who photoshopped, by the way, fake picture with Trump. Okay. <laughs> and, and then they tried to brand him as a Trumper. So we ran as independents. We got about 100,000 votes, five times more than any candidate. So this time we ran as Republicans. Okay. The, a number of Republicans are coming to me. You know, I didn't vaccinate my kid. I didn't vaccinate my kid. They won't say publicly. Okay. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of people who have not vaccinated their children, but they don't want to talk about it, Hotep, because they're oh. afraid of, you know, it's like saying I'm, I support Trump, you know? Right. That kind of thing, okay? Or I'm gay. Something like that. It's yeah. or I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an untouchable, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like that, yeah. right? I think, yeah, I think, the, I think the real dichotomy is status and not status, right? You know, exactly. some people want the state to be in charge of everything. And some people are like, nah, we don't really need the state in charge of things. So I think that's where the never Trumper, that's where the Trumpers are, right? Like some Trumpers are like status, right? They they, right. they want to be with the well, there's, state. There's two types of Trumpers. There were the early Trumpers. I mean, I never voted. I, I saw, a tr and then there were the, there are a lot of fake Trumpers. Yes. In, in Massachusetts, you have a guy who is the chairman of the Massachusetts GOP. He didn't want to even put a Trump sign. Now he's all Trump. Why? Because he needs money. So I'm saying, I think if you actually looked at it, if we actually did the demographic analysis, we'd probably find the Trumpers who were Trumpers, you know, pre-20, January 2016. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And the Trumpers, I bet you if you did that analysis, probably a lot of people who want to, who are open to the choice, forget pro or anti, I think that who are saying, hey, we shouldn't take away religious exemptions on freedom are probably the Trumpers who came early to Trump. Yes, yes. You see what I'm saying? I think yes. that, if you did a cluster diagram, and then you have all these people now wear MAGA hats, right? Yeah. A lot of them are bullshitters. Now they're on board. They're the opportunists, right? Yes, yes. So the opportunists, man, I think are the people who care about status. They look around, oh, okay, everyone's MAGA hats. Now I can wear the MAGA hat. Oh, everyone's getting vaccinated. Okay, I'm going to get vaccinated, right? They're followers. Yeah. But the... The people who voted for Trump, right, independent of that, are, I bet you there's a big correlation. I mean, we, should, we could do a research project on that. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to do it just through like Twitter experiments, polls, asking trolling type questions, and then looking and seeing like, hey, where do you live? Is this a male or female? You know, mm -hmm. is Trump in your bio? But you're right, man. You know, I, I even find people who have a certain level of, uh, rhetoric the they are people who were anti-trump but now maga right so in 2016 yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like maga you know all of these products you know it's like if you read that book by uh more you know the uh it's called uh, uh you know the chasm 
you know, the chasm book, what the hell was that book? If someone remembers this, no, uh, it, it, it's called crossing the chasm. Okay. Okay. It's a great business book. It says when a new product comes out, you have the early adopters, you know, who are, who are revolutionaries are willing to try it. Right. And then watch how it goes. And then you cross the chasm and then the laggards come in. Okay. Yeah. Watch. Okay. Politicians yeah. are like that. Um, we have guys here who's now the head of the Trump. I mean, this guy was a complete anti-Trumper. Okay. Now he's wearing Trump gear, you know, like overdoes it. You know, he's all Trump. He's full of shit. Yeah. But, they won't, and the measure is they won't support me. They go support the Democrat. You see what I'm saying? They undermine me. They will try to run an establishment idiot against me. That's what they'll try. You see what I'm saying? We'll see yeah. what happens. But my point is, it's ultimately, it's the revolutionaries, it's the pioneers, it's the creative people, it's the people who are innovators, it's the people who have balls versus the people who are ballless, who are followers, who are sheep. That's really what this is. Yeah. So I bet if you look at that Trump movement, you can see who followed, right? Yeah. Who were there because they got it, they resonated because they finally saw someone saying what was in their mind, right? Yeah. People said, oh, okay, well, Cruz is out, I guess I gotta follow, you know, now. Yeah, it was, it was opportunist. Yeah, you know, I find that most of the people that are popular in the MAGA movement were never Trumpers, right? And, yeah. and so, like, so now my concern is, you know, I always think about, you know, the common person, right, the everyday person. What is it that I can do to kind of expose them? Because they're fooled by the opportunists. They listen. The everyday person is listening to the opportunists because they get the Fox News every day and. Exactly. They get the donor money and all of that. I mean, even Hannity, that guy, that guy's, I mean, he wasn't pro-Trump in the beginning. Go look at his early stuff. Now he's, you know, and, and Tucker watches which way the wind blows. You watch him, right? Yeah. He takes, I mean, I was supposed to be on Tucker's show. Some guy put a mugshot of me, okay? I was supposed to be on, this is, this is Tucker Carlson, if you're listening. You don't have a spine, Tucker. And this is why Tucker doesn't have a spine. Let me uh -oh. tell you what he did. Uh, I was set up to be on a show. It was all set up. A scumbag radio announcer who's the white Al Sharpton called Howie Carr put up a picture of me, a mugshot. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that case was outright dismissed. A woman was trying to hold me up. I was willing to go all the way to court. The, in Massachusetts, such pro-woman, the woman had made up a complete fake police report. I was willing to go in all out. She dropped the case. And in Massachusetts, if a woman says someone did anything to her, the, the DA will still continue. It was outright dismissed. They knew that. So they put this mugshot up while running ads for my other candidate. Okay. So I was supposed to be on Tucker's show and Tucker saw us and I say, Tucker. And he says, oh, well, you know, that happened to me too one time. And, and, and after he doesn't put me on a show because he pussied out, he then two weeks later gets on his own show and says, because someone was gonna come out, he goes, I just wanna let you know that this almost happened to me and blah, 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 blah. Tucker is a follower. He literally, you know, I called Harvard a hedge fund, then he starts calling them a hedge fund, okay? <laughs> I called out that we should start, you know, uh, student loans, the university should co-sign, now he says that, okay? I've exchanged with him. Yeah. You know, so. But he won't bring you on the show. He was supposed to be on my show. Um, and then he talks about supporting Kavanaugh. Right, but what a darkie can't be supported? What a dark guy beats white women? That's what he's saying. And when the facts are obvious, it was outright dismissed. Uh. And Tucker Carlson 
now talks all of his stuff. He tries to be, you know, very intellectual and shit, but he wouldn't put me on when he was, I was scheduled to go on for the same reason that he later defended Kavanaugh when Kavanaugh may have actually had stuff on him, right? We don't know. Right. But my thing was outright dismissed. So what I'm trying to say, and you're bringing up an interesting issue that there are people who mislead movements. And the way I look at it is watch where they were at the time that was taking place. So people need to see what was Tucker. I mean, I had a friend of mine who knows Tucker quite well. And he said, Tucker was talking to Trump and he thinks Trump's crazy. Okay. So Tucker watches which way the winds blows. He's got probably some bunch of analysts who tell him, okay, you need to speak like this now, Tucker, because Mm -hmm. the trajectory is this way, right? You can get more viewers. That's what's going on, man. But what they'll say is they'll say, oh, but, you know, people can change. People can change. Right. That's the rebuttal I always get when I say, you know, you're supporting somebody that was a never Trumper. Yeah, I believe that. I say you look at someone's history. You know the story with the frog and the scorpion, right? You know that story? I forgot it. Tell it again. Very, Very famous story. Frog and a scorpion are sitting on the side of the bank and the scorpion goes to the frog and he goes, you know, look, can you give me a ride on your back? I need to get across the river. And the frog said, hell no, because you're going to bite me. And, and he goes, Scorpion says, no, 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 I won't do that. I promise. Please, I got to get across. My family's on the other side. Please help me out. He goes, look, you're going to bite me. Anyway, the scorpion pleads and cries and blah, blah, blah. And the, and the frog says, oh, maybe you're different. Okay. So he gets on his back and they start swimming, frog swimming across the river. And you know what the scorpion does? Fucking bites him. And the frog's dying. He goes, I thought you wouldn't do this to me. He goes, you know what? I'm a scorpion. You know what scorpions do? We bite. Okay. <laughs> so people need to understand. I'm sorry. People don't change when you're part of the establishment. You know, you don't get to these big roles on mainstream media, Tucker Carlson and Hannity by, you know, being a revolutionary. You get there by sucking up and watching which way the wind blows. There it is. There right? it is. I've been saying this, Dr. Shiva, for the past <laughs> year. They've been calling me a hater and all this other shit. And I'm like, yo, I was with Trump from day one. But, but, Otep, you know, part of the thing people need to understand is the journey that you went through and I went through, we had to deal with real struggles. And the journey that an average white working class person is real shit. These are their kids who have mama and papa you know, taking care of them and all this kind of stuff who don't ever have to have work. I mean, I've been working since I was 14. I saw, you know, when you struggle, um, you wake up to reality, you know? A friend of mine, you know, in New Jersey, you know, I grew up with, since I was 12 years old, they used to hire her when she was 17, 18 to do jury selection. She grew up in Newark, okay? okay. You grow up in Newark, man, you have street smarts. When you grow up in India and you grow up in, you know, Patterson, you get street smarts. You're not stupid. A lot of these kids are stupid. A lot of, that's why I'm saying people are living in an illusion in this country. That's why you see California. You see people pushing this stuff through. You think vaccines are safe and you have thugs. So this country is in a very dangerous situation, in my view, because you have opportunists taking advantage of people. And, yeah. and But I do believe common sense. People work with their hands. I have this theory. People are plumbers, who are electricians, even a neurosurgeon. Um, If you build stuff, if you run a company, you have to deal with this material reality. Shit, I got to deliver something to this customer. And if he doesn't like it, I don't get paid. So the rubber meets the road always. Right. So if a mother sees her kid go in, get these shots and get screwed up, 
the rubber meets the road. Yeah. The people where the rubber meets doesn't meet the road are politicians, the Kennedys, okay? They can get drunk. They can kill people, talk all sorts of shit. Nothing happens to them. They can be branded great leaders, okay? Yeah. But people like you and me, we may not even do anything wrong, and people could have put a mugshot of us up, even though it was outright dismissed. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And the Absolutely. same, by the way, the same radio announcer did this. He beat the hell out of his wife, and I had all the records sealed, okay? So that's the way they work. So people need to wake up and look at someone's history. Let's go back and look at this guy. Wow, he's burning South African flag on the steps of MIT. He's a low caste Indian guy. He's always been fighting. He had to fight here, here, here. He's always a fighter. He's going to fight for me because yeah. his fight is integrated. He's one of us. Yeah. This guy, you know, has a golden freaking silver spoon all of his life. Joe Kennedy, who I'm um, silver spoon kid, right? And you're a Democrat. You're, it's an aristocrat versus an untouchable. That's what they don't want because it'll be so clear that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party work together. So how do I, how do I, uh, I hate to use this word, but awaken or or make the common person privy to the opportunist and the fact that they are derailing our you know righteous agenda, or do we ignore the opportunist and, and just continue to just educate? I think you have to do both. I believe you know you have to do two things. You have to educate, which is what we're doing right here, man. Right. You have to viciously, uncompromisingly beat the shit out of the not so obvious establishment and expose the opportunists. The establishment is not who tried to kick me out of the hearing. It was this health choice group. Okay. Yeah. Who tried to stop me in Livingston, a bunch of white liberal Democrats. Okay. Yeah. It is the, the, the real enemies of the movement are the opportunists. They are actually the weapon of the establishment. Yes. Yeah, this it's a physics. Of, you know, I have a thing I call it the physics of revolution. It's physics. Like I can predict what the fuck's going to happen, man. Right. Seen enough. It's a physics. It's the apple falls. It's getting gravity. The not yeah. so obvious establishment is used to manipulate the masses. So they have created all these opportunists. Okay. So when a revolutionary rises, who actually gets the appeal of, I mean, you saw in this vaccine within four months, man, we had all these people saying, oh my God, Shiva is there. And then right. The second wave was the opportunist wave. Okay, afraid of me. I went to the Vi event, right, where I wasn't even supposed to go there. The Bobby Kennedys, they were forced to put me on the stage. Okay, but none of them said anything to me mm. because they're afraid of the revolutionary. Bobby Kennedy wrote a letter to a young kid who exposed one of the guys in the movement, this guy called Mark Blacksell, who's part of the misleader in the movement. And Bobby Kennedy said, well, you know, Jake, you're very radical, okay? You know, uh, I'm like the Martin Luther King and you're like the Bobby Seal. What is he actually saying? He's like saying, I know I'm a fucking misleader. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, yeah. But these are clever. So you have to expose the not so obvious establishment. Mm. It's not the establishment. Bernie Sanders is a scumbag. Oh, yeah. Trotsky. I call him Trotsky. The Trotskyites. Yep. Yeah. Lenin was very good at this. In the early stages, Lenin... The reason the Russian Revolution during that, Lenin was a master of exposing the Mensheviks, who were the not so obvious establishment. If you read State and Revolution, and by the way, a lot of people, oh, Lenin, Marx, oh, you know, they're idiots. They don't even read this shit, okay? They just, 
they, they're into the propaganda of the McCarthy era, which was really against the working movement, workers' movement. So they lump all these guys in. But some of Lenin's work, State and Revolution, is brilliant. Okay. One of the greatest exposés of the not-so-obvious establishment, which is what the Mensheviks were. The Tsar created the Mensheviks to get the workers from fighting into the legislator. And, and that is the exposition that needs to be done. And when revolutionaries do that, they get scared shitless. Mm. I, and especially if they're people of the people, Hotep, like you and I. Right. If people like you and I, and we start articulating smarts, that's danger. And that's why they will try to say, well, you know, the, this guy doesn't talk right. I don't like the tone, right? Yeah. You know, I don't like the way he uses the word ain't. I don't like him using the word nigga, okay? Yeah. Well, fuck you. That's my answer. <laughs> fuck you. We'll use that word because, you know, I was going to make a t-shirt. We're all niggas on the white liberal plantation. Uh. To do that. Because that's what we are, all of us, black and white people. I mean, just because we don't use that word doesn't mean we're not all slaves still. Yeah, We are. So yeah. what they want to do is don't want us to use that word so they can hide the fact that we're not slaves. Oh, That's oh. what's going on. Control the language. Yeah, yeah. Let me all use that word. In my view, that word should be used. The N-I-G-G-A-H version. Okay? Oh, yeah. We should use it and we should say we're all niggas on the white liberal plantation. That's okay. what we are. Yeah. They don't want us to use that word because it absolves them of what they're actually doing to us. Mm -hmm. Shackles, when they are trying to force everyone to get vaccinated, the real issue, the real way we get to public, we got to go back to public health. The public health issue, like we did in the 1900s, we got to get rid of these pesticides. There's over 10,000 pesticides. We got to get understand why not everyone can afford organic food. We got to understand, you know, uh, what is actually going on in terms of uh, who is owning agriculture in this country. That's public infrastructure. And we need, and the only way we're going to get there is to build a revolutionary movement as we did in the 18-1900s. And the American working class was the real vanguard of the worldwide workers' movement. And when that workers' movement built, and they're the ones who put a gun to FDR's head, they got so scared, Hotep, that in the 1950s, they created the Red Scare. It wasn't against communism. It was against the working people in this country mm. to say, you know, stop it. And then they took over all the unions. That's what mm. occurred. Mm. And all the unions are now left testicles of the Democratic Party. Let me slide into some super chats where as we close out here, uh, shared terror. Thank you. Everyone needs to go to Shiva for Senate.com. I'll say it one more time. Shiva for Senate.com. Uh, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, Dre West, Dr. Shiva dropping gems. That boy. Good. Thank you for this information. Uh, Zakia Vasquez says, uh, he is right about C-sections. My last two C-section kids were swabbed. They cultured the goodies in my vaginal canal and put it in their nose, etc. Yeah, that is awesome. What is the uh, the main takeaway today that you want people to walk home with uh, out of all the you know discussions? We, I mean, we talk revolution, we talk politics, we talk vaccines. You know, uh, what is something you want them to just take home today? You think that they should, you know, maybe research or or, or meditate on? Yeah, it's a great. I think it's a great thing. I think one of the key principles is that what does it mean to be a human being? 
Mm. This is probably the most fun. What does it mean to be human? And what does it mean to be a robot? I talk about this. Mm. A human, you know, and it's a very deep question. You ask, what should people meditate on? People should think about what does it mean ultimately to be a human versus a robot? A computer, right? Computer. Yeah. And I had this awakening uh, many years ago. I used to do a lot of research in AI, you know, and in 1994, I remember this, I used to meditate a lot. I still do, but I used to do much more heavily. I, I woke up in a very lucid dream and it was a very interesting dream. I was sitting at a table hotel with another being who, who was a robot. And the question was, what makes me different than that thing? Because one day, based on where technology is going, we could create things that looks like us, talks like us, has everything. The issue will be what makes me different than that? And it's a very powerful question. And the realization I came to was that when you realize either you've lost someone really deeply important to you, or you've had the deep question of what does it mean to, to, to love or if you've lost someone. And that forces you to reflect on what it means to be you. And the conclusion you come to is that this life is ephemeral, that ultimately what remains is your deeds, your actions, what you actually do, because it's all gone in the end. It doesn't matter what the hell you have. So what is it you want to leave behind? Yeah. And, what, and to me, what it comes down to, the essence of being a hu human being is to be a creator. Yes. Is, is to be, uh, I mean, all the great teachers talked about it, be Jesus, Buddha, et cetera, is to find, is to be a co-creator with all of this. Yes. Now, that is very different than being a robot. The, the, the Japanese kid who just learns how to play the violin by falling and can play it great versus a kid who never went to school and figures out to express that within himself. Yes. This is about being creative. That's the essence of what we're talking about. And, and to be a creative human being means you must have freedom. And it must mean that that creativity can occur anytime, any place by anybody. That means a 14 year old kid in Newark, New Jersey can invent email or a kid in MIT or a kid in Franklin, Idaho can invent TV. That when we limit that sense of where creativity takes place, we basically dehumanize a human being. Mm. This is what it's ultimately about. What does it mean to be a human being? And when the state tries to constrain what an intelligent person looks like, he must have a beard, he must have glasses, he must walk all fucked up, then you're intelligent, right? Or what does it mean to be a certain kind of person, right? A constraint, right? That is ultimately the vial. That's what we're re really been talking about. So if you're going to tell a mother that she doesn't have the life force or the divinity to understand what's right for her kid and you, the state is going to impose it, that's a violation of humanity. And you're basically what you're telling is I'm going to create robots. So when I tell everyone talking about AI, AI, well, you know what? We've had AI for a long time when we created the assembly line. Mm. Right. It was just carbon based beings. And whether it's silicon based or carbon based, it doesn't matter. If you create a bunch of people who all believe vaccines are safe, who all believe GMOs are fine, who all believe, OK, now I'll follow Trump because it's the right thing to do. Right. Because it leads. Those are robots. So this is really a question, ultimately, of do you want to be human or do you want to be a robot? That's the ultimate question. Do you want to be human or do you want to be a robot? Mm.
And it's the fundamental question. And if you want to be a human being, then you have to be understand that this life is ephemeral, that whether you live 30 years or 40 years, or whether you fight dying for it, you lived a human being, even for one day. Yeah. That, that's what the fundamental issue is, man. That's what people need to think about. And I think that's what Christ was talking about. Um, that's what independent of him, anyone who's given up their lives for their loved ones, fighting something they believed in, they ultimately were true human beings. Yeah. Damn. Mic drop. Bomb. That's the way you close it out, man. Thank you, Dr. Seabob. Right. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Pleasure to be on with you. Uh, this will be on soundcloud.com slash Hotep Jesus, just in case the uh, Illuminati decides <laughs> to... You know, well, we have our own data center, man. We can put stuff out of my own data center. You know, we have some infrastructure here if we need that. I do. We're gonna make that happen. Yeah. But, but January sixth, man, everyone should show up at Livingston High School. Okay, inside, outside, any side, they will get an education, and New Jersey will get an education. And by the way, the Revolutionary War. Let's not forget the turning point took place in New Jersey. Uh uh What was that? Uh. One of the big battles of Trenton, right? Took place down there, you know? Really? Huh? Really? Yeah, yeah. It was one of the, go. you know, we'll, we'll talk about another time. One of the important battles, which was a major turning point, mm. took place in Jersey. Wow. It okay. was the turning point of the Revolutionary War. Well, I've already been taking notes for our second conversation. <laughs> All right, man. We'll do so it again. Come back next time. Well, we'll talk people to need, man. They need people from the people to talk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got I got a couple of you know topics. Next time you come back, we're gonna talk GMO. We're gonna talk revolution. We're gonna talk Ref Russian revolution. We're gonna talk revolutionary war. We're gonna get some deep stuff next time too. All right. Um, thank you everybody for tuning in. Thank you everybody once again uh, for the super chats. And uh, like I said before, another epic conversation. Peace out, y'all. Thank you. Be well. <laughs>